0: Due to the graphic nature of the personal accounts and content discussed in this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Many episodes will include graphic personal accounts and discussions of child sexual assault, domestic violence, physical abuse, rape, sexual situations, and suicide.
1: excited to have our guest, uh, Catherine Jeffries, who is an author. She is a, a fiction author. She has a book out. Um, she also is what I would call a specialist on narcissism and abuse. And so we are very excited to have you here today, Catherine. Thanks. Hi. Hi. We have uh, Lots of friends in common, and before you and I were friends on on Facebook, I would I would see your posts and your comments uh, through friends, you know, through mutual friends, and I've just had a tremendous amount of respect for you and your experience, and so we are very excited to have you here today.
2: Well, thanks. I I should say I'm not like I'm not certified, but my whole life I feel like I've been just this narc magnet. And I was raised in narcissism, so I know I speak fluent narcissists, but I'm not, like, you know, credentialed. So, <laughs> uh, okay. so yeah, but I, I, you know, relate very, very well, very quickly to people who've been through it. And it's, it's always interesting to give them the words and give them just the, the confirmation that what they went through was a tactic. And it was, you know, it was kind of a, you know, just an assault on, on their mentality constantly. And it was very, like, deliberate by somebody who was very confident in, in how cruel they could be. And and it's very shocking because, you know, everybody wants to blame themselves. So to be able to say to someone who's been through it that you're not crazy and that you didn't deserve it and, you know, to walk them through these these very confusing tactics that made them doubt their own self and memory has been really rewarding. Re- rewarding. So I'm glad that I started speaking out about it and started hearing more stories because... A lot of people just didn't know what was real by the time.
1: I didn't know. I mean, I learned. A, I learned a ton from your posts. I, I I always thought that uh, if you called somebody a narcissist, you were basically just saying they were very conceited. I, mm-hmm. I actually. I mean, I got all the way to forty-six years old before I realized that narcissism was an actual personality disorder,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and um, it, it clicked in my brain. Uh, so clearly, and helped me to understand why there were certain relationships of mine that could never just work. They were constant, uh, constant problems, constant, constantly running into brick walls. and it it really helped me to identify um, identify a lot of those tactics in my own relationships and and in fact, it helped me also to cut out some folks because I, I know that you, you can't fix narcissism. I mean, there's ways that that if people are willing and and conscious about it, they can, you know, get behavioral therapy and stuff like that to in order to manage it. But uh, you know, a lot of times the narcissism doesn't even allow them to to recognize that in themselves. So. It actually helped me a lot um, to be able to read your posts and understand it better. So, um, so thank you for being here. And, um, so maybe you could just start by telling us a, li- a little bit about you.
2: Sure. Um, I want to say you know, kind of overall for for anybody listening that if you if you come from a high demand controlling system, such as, you know, we'll talk about Mormonism for me, corporate Mormonism, um, and you were ever feeling like a square peg in a round hole, then I would say that you have been abused narcissistically, um, especially if you tried to stay within that system or challenge the system in any way. So this is completely relatable to anybody who, you know, pushed back and tried to get their footing and get their voice into a system that would eventually, you know, berate belittle minimize, and validate, and basically mentally abuse them for just being who they are. Um, so there are just a lot of parallels on why I, you know, became the Mormon that I became, was the Mormon that I was, and, and a lot of that had to do with kind of the micro level of what was going on in my home. Um, growing up, it was, I was, I was very aware that there was chaos. I was very aware that I didn't like being in the home. And I kind of found this little hiding place in the side of the house where I would go play with the little river rocks. I don't know if you remember those from the 80s where people would put those in their yards, the little tiny soft rocks. And I would sit down there and play with my dolls and I would make stacks of the rocks and I would tuck in my shirt, put them down my shirt, pretend I was fat. And just it was. That was just my happy place was being out in the backyard, being by myself, because in the home there was just no peace. and. I don't have a lot of memories of of things particularly being bad. I remember there being inappropriate movies on, and my mom kind of shuffling us out of the room, and my dad acting like she was overreacting, but knowing in my mind, you know, knowing from what I've been taught, like that's not okay. But okay, I guess I don't know. I guess I don't know what an R-rated movies, even though they say don't watch those kinds of things. Um, and I knew that there was a lot of swearing, um, a lot of anger, a lot of Fighting with my parents, um, that we were always sent to our room when they fought, and you know, I would hear things, I would hear things thumping, I would hear things breaking, but I didn't see anything. Um, I didn't know who was doing what, and as a kid, you're not really wanting to assign blame to any parent, you're just kind of going back into your own little world. Um, the violence kind of came my way when I was about eight, and um. And at that point, you know, I, I really loved the church. I really loved God. I thought he and I were kind of a team. And so, I, of course, I thought any hardship would kind of be um, counted for a blessing. You know, like they say, like, oh, if you're going through this trial, if you handle it well, then you're going to be blessed. And so I, I kind of, starting very young, kind of thought this was going to mean that I was going to get a big blessing for all of this. So mm-hmm. this was I was going to get paid back for all of this. And around the age of eight, I remember going downstairs, um, I wasn't feeling well, I didn't want to go to church, and I told my father, um, I don't feel well, I don't really want to go to church today, and he turned over his shoulder, and he said, well, then go back upstairs and go to bed. And then he turned back to the television, which started blaring the, the static, the fuzz, I guess the cable had gone out, and so I kind of made this startled face, and my brow kind of came down, and I I was really startled by that, and he turned around to see that and came charging at me. So I kind of stumbled back into the wall, and he grabbed me by the neck, and he hit me, and he said, don't you ever look at me like that again.
4: And I thought, the the most, the most
2: terrifying thing was that, you know, he came at me with that anger, but the most terrifying thing was, oh, my God, he's an idiot. That was one of the first things that I thought was, he doesn't even know why I'm making this face. Obviously, I'm startled, and I'm scared because now I'm I'm at the whim of this unhinged idiot who took something completely wrong and is hurting me for it.
3: Like
2: mm-hmm. This guy can't be trusted. And so I, for some reason, went upstairs, put my church dress on, and was going to be super righteous because... I just had to prove like, no, I'm not a bad girl. I'm going to be a good girl and I'm going to go to church and this will be fine. But as time went on, the targeting continued. I was, you know, grabbed by my arm, grabbed by the back of my neck. I was grabbed, shoved, um, yanked, like for anything, for just making a face or not even having an awareness of what my face was doing. Cause when you're little, you don't really know. Um, when he would yell at me it would turn violent if i rolled my eyes and i was constantly told that i had an attitude problem that i was the problem of the family that he could get that everyone's getting along just fine until i show up and we were you know we're all we're all doing having a good time until you come in and so this this braven would happen and it would be you know you are you're causing all these problems and then he would send me away and then he would sit at the table and be like, can't you guys see that she's nothing but a problem? She does this all the time. We were having such a good time until she made that face, obviously. And then she, she defended herself. She got, she got difficult. So can't you see that, like, she's so difficult to deal with? And this whole family's sitting there at the table listening, and I'm, you know, trudging off to my room with my head down. No one's defending me. No one comes to comfort me. And I'm just sent to be by myself until... Usually my mother would come in and sit down and say, you know, you're, you're, you're starting to resemble a woman and your father has a lot of anger toward his mother and that's called transference. So his anger is coming from his anger, his mother toward you. And we need you, you know, I need you to be forgiving and accepting and understand that he had a really tough childhood. And, you know, this is just the way things are going to be for you. Um, And, you know, eventually my dad would come in and be like, I'm sorry, but, you know, the wonderful castrating apology of like, I'm sorry, but you're such a dick. You know, like that kind of thing where there was no real accountability for him at all. Um, And what's interesting is that that we were told, you know, not to talk about this, that this was a family issue, that we um, were to remain loyal. The word loyal was constantly thrown around. And... um, but what's interesting about that is that my dad was a dick to everybody. He was unhinged in public. He was unhinged sometimes at church. He was just this guy who ran roughshod over people constantly. But we still, as children, could not betray him by admitting that and saying, "Yeah, he's so mean, or he's so difficult, or he's really hard at home." Like it, it, we had to, you know, say, "What are you? What are you talking about?" what are you talking about? He's great. He's so smart. And he's so he's such a great lawyer. And he's such a great member of the church. And oops, he's in the bishopric. He's so great. Like there was never or he made a lot of money. So there was really no way for us to resolve any of that. Even though people were kind of looking at our family thinking, what a shit show. We had to go, what do you mean? We love it here. This is Mm -hmm. so great. And And people actually thought like, I thought you were best friends with your dad. Even people in high school, after high school, were like, I thought you guys were so close. And it was because I, you know, I have to admit that I was brainwashed. I honestly thought, my dad is so smart. He knows what he's doing. There must be something wrong with me. And that's a lot of what narcissism is. And, and I know that I felt this way in the narcissistic structure of the church of like, what am I not getting? Mm-hmm. Is there, everyone seems okay with this. Everyone's on board. Everyone's. Crying and bearing their testimonies, and, and as much as I loved God and the Heavenly Father, like I just there were so many questions and, and they all just kind of acted like I wasn't in on the joke, and so that's a lot of what narcissistic families are like is that they they act like they can read your mind that they are the only one who really knows you and you're awful, and you're terrible, and if you don't fundamentally change who you are, then you're not going to deserve anything any decency from them or anyone else in the system and so it was—it was really, you know, quite a mindfuck to to go through life saying I'm just like my siblings. I get really good grades. I'm very active in the church. I'm a great a- athlete. I write books in my room. You know, on the weekends I don't even really go out. I'm just this little nerd. And yet to be told like you're you're the worst kid of all when I would bake and cook and clean and wash the dog and be the super helpful kid that none of the other kids really were. Yet I could never get ahead. Could never get ahead. I, I remember once we were at the table, and my dad sneezed, and um, and this was a really—I mean, this, this is the part of the this is part of the the abuse that comes into play where you kind of blame yourself, you know. But I was just this normal kid who my dad says, "Hey, haven't I taught you to bless people when they sneeze?" And I looked around the table and I was like, nobody else did. And that was a big call-out for him. It was like, nobody else gives a shit that your face exploded. Like, nobody else cares, that, And he lost it. And it was a really, you know, really bad fight. Um, but, you know, that, that whole idea of, like, I was just sitting here, just like everybody else.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And for whatever reason, he had to constantly discredit me, constantly vilify me, make me the one that they were better off without, essentially.
4: Yeah. Um and so, you know,
2: going through life that way, you just kind of, I, I think I was about 11 when I remember um, receiving the, hearing a lesson about the mustard seed. Like if it can move a mountain, you know, like if your faith can, your faith can move a mountain. And I thought, well, maybe my faith could stop my heart.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I just laid in bed, like, believing that my heart would stop so that my family could finally be happy. Because how old were you? Eleven.
4: Oh. Yeah, so um,
2: yeah, and it just it kind of got worse when we moved down to Los Angeles because my dad hates it here. And then the brothers left the house, and so I was a lot more isolated. and um,
4: you know the the attacks would I mean,
2: when I say attacks, it was just verbal beratement for forty five minutes of you're manipulative and, oh, you're selfish and you're so ungrateful and nobody likes you and no wonder you don't talk to that friend anymore and, you know, just constant. Um, and he was kind of like, I mean, he was kind of like a thesaurus for, like, he would say you're self-interested, self-important, selfish, self-self-self, like, all these self, you know, um, synonyms would go off and if I started crying, I was manipulative. If I was quiet, then I was manipulative. Like, there was nothing that I could really do um, and I knew that, that, that it was all just major, major projection on his part. Like he had to put all of his faults on me and, and then meanwhile, the other golden children, which most of them were, um, could do absolutely no wrong. I couldn't believe that I would sit at the table and they would get an attitude or get a tone and he would just laugh it off. And I know that uh, he'd have my head if I ever, you know, snapped back at him like that. But it's interesting because in growing up, and I and I see this in, in Mormonism as well, is that the golden children don't escape that pain. And while, you know, how can I say this? I, I think I've come to terms with the fact that I'm grateful that I was the scapegoat hmm. because I wasn't fed by the system. And I didn't find anything there for me anymore. I got starved out. Mm-hmm. And... And I think it's a much more difficult role to play for the golden children because they not only, you might want to say, okay, they can't do any wrong in the eyes of the the narcissist, but they also feel, they also know that the system is conditional. And so their anxiety in keeping their place is much higher than the kid who can't do anything right. So I wasn't, you know, my dad did not approve of me playing volleyball, even though I was amazing at it. actually he approved when i got really good at it um he didn't like the books that i wrote didn't think that they were appropriate they weren't mormon they weren't little girl books um i think if i'd gotten a bestseller he would have been far more supportive but so i was kind of able to do my own thing because i couldn't win anyway Mm -hmm. and i wasn't i wasn't a bad kid i wasn't like well i'm just gonna go drink and party and i wasn't that i I was allowed more to be myself but the golden children. I think feel far more pressure, unconsciously, to maintain that image, a lot more. And so, you know, what's what's unfortunate is that a lot of the golden children I've talked to have just become immense liars,
0: mm-hmm.
2: just immense. Like, yeah.
0: So just just listening to you say this, I just keep thinking about. Okay, so um, we have a person who's a narcissist. So your dad was a narcissist, um, or had narcissistic tendencies or whatever. I don't know if he was ever sure. diagnosed. Um, that, that so um so he he's like the the what you're comparing everything to as a narcissist with the church, it's a system. and yeah. you're you were saying the thing about um, are the people who are the golden child or the people who um, don't face abuse. So so if i if I put it in that context, people that don't face the abuse, people that aren't being abused. They don't ever, they, they keep their heads down, first of all, because the minute that you put your head up and start speaking, if you're not the one being abused, um, but speaking out against abuse, you become a scapegoat also. So, you know, there's, there've been multiple um, members who have been excommunicated for speaking up. Um, I'm sure you can think of many, Sam Young, Bill Reel, you know, most multiple um, Exmos that that have tried to just make change within the system. When I left the church in 2018, just before that, I was trying to do what I could within the system to be able to change it within. There is no changing a narcissist, right? That's what we've decided here. We've just kind of talked about that. There. If the narcissist wants to change, if they're even able to see they need to change, then that's maybe a possibility, right? Because they'll start asking for help or get therapy. But the system is created on this narcissistic, um, these narcissistic tendencies, and the people within it will keep their heads down and just keep moving forward and never see the problem. So those of us who have been abused can see the abuse and can see how the abuse happens in the system also. Um, I, you know, I'm just sitting here with this epiphany while we're just talking and I just love it. This is, this is awesome. It's very good. Well, it's
2: interesting to, um, many, many narcissists are not diagnosed simply because most people seek out a a diagnosis when they've experienced significant discomfort. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if a narcissist, um, keeps losing spouses or none of his children talk to him anymore, or he keeps losing his job will be like okay i need to modify my behaviors even though they may not be able to change their mindset i need to modify my behaviors
3: mm-hmm.
2: and that's why a lot of what the church does is okay fine we'll modify some behaviors but we still think that these these things are awful mm-hmm. and we're going to have that subtext constantly you know with the LGBTQIA+ community mm-hmm. like we're going to we'll give you some concessions because we're going to be made to feel financially uncomfortable mm-hmm. but we're not going to actually embrace and speak you know inclusively we're just gonna throw you whatever we need to throw you so you'll shut up exactly. and stop making us uncomfortable mm-hmm. and so that's that's an interesting thing because they really do silence and discredit i mean the one the one thing that that narcissists do is just completely discredit whoever comes against them yeah. like i i'm sure we've heard the argument you know if you if you bring something up with a narcissist a lot of times they'll say well you're not perfect you know. Mm-hmm so there's the, the blame sharing you know, and then yeah. the church is perfect but the people are not and there's always mm-hmm. an out and then you can watch a session of conference and have a talk on grace and then have a talk on works so all the bases are covered and there's always a talk to be referred to and quoted to have the person's beliefs propped up and upheld so um, so yeah it's a really interesting manipulative tactic where you know a narcissists in person do this where they say well remember that time I was nice to you? And you're like yeah that was yeah. three years ago and mm-hmm. I'm like I know yeah, it was amazing, and you're like, but, yeah. but you've been really mean for the last three years, right. and they're like, yeah. well, but so so I'm all bad then? Is that what you're saying that I'm a total horrible, terrible person, and I'm this really bad father, and I never should have had children? Is that what you're saying? And you're just like, and you're stuck, and you're hung, mm-hmm. and you're going, I okay, you can't I, win. No, you're not that bad. Okay, my fault. Like you just mm-hmm. want it over with. You just want to smooth it over because you don't want to get hurt worse and you don't want to be vilified and attacked and that's why a lot of people they see this, kids, you know golden children see it and they know it and they know you know, so a lot of times not every, I don't want to say everybody has skeletons in their closet who's a golden child or 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 one of the circle pegs in the circle hole of the church but you really do learn to deny a lot, either you deny yourself your own freedom and your own desires or you deny that you ever have them or you deny The fact that they exist or that Mm -hmm. you have committed those things, like you you become a kind of a liar to cover Mm -hmm. up your humanity and that's Mm -hmm.
0: all it is. Well, you've you've been trained for so long when you're a kid growing up with narcissistic parents, um, you've been trained to ignore your own intuition, to ignore your own truth, because it's not the truth. Even if, you know, if, if your parents say you're, you know, you're lying, if you say I'm not lying, then you're you're being defiant and deflecting and whatever else so yeah. how do you ever win either by the either as the person that was being abused or the person that's witnessing the abuse neither one of them is going to want to speak up they've been conditioned not to
2: well what's even worse about that and the church is that narcissists very much act like mind readers mm-hmm. and that's what you kind of come into with the church where it's like if you so much as think about doing this you may as well have done it yeah. And so your thoughts, you you feel invaded all the time. You feel like someone, someone knows that you're deep down a piece of shit, and they just know that about you. Even though you could do all the, and that's why you know a lot of people have imposter syndrome. Like you're doing all these good works, and you're being a really good person, and you've gotten good grades, and you're nice, and you're helpful but they're really going to know that you only did those things for attention and you're not really that nice of a person. And that's the mind reading that, Mm -hmm. that when you say, no, I'm not lying they're Like, but I know you, and I know you're the kind of person who would do something like that. Mm -hmm. So you, you really can't get out from under it
3: at all. You can't.
2: I, so my
1: person in my life, like I'm not really scared of anybody. And I, I go really hard in my family and it, It doesn't always work out for me, but I go really hard. But the one person that I can't is the narcissist. And it's the one person that I'm actually afraid of because, like even now sitting in this chair, um, because if I threaten his authority, if if I threaten his rulership, he will double down and triple down and quadruple down until he has destroyed me so i try to kind of completely stay away because i'm not going to back down with him either if he wants to double down i'm going to meet him at there and then i'll meet him at the next place and i'll meet him at the next place but the fear comes in when the things that they accuse are, are imaginary. Yeah. And um, I had a situation where I, I was having, I'm not sure if I want to tell this story. Maybe I won't tell this story. Okay. But I, I had a situation where um, the narcissist was controlling the narrative over some decisions that I was making in my life. And he was just pulling out completely random, completely random things to discredit me, mm-hmm. specifically to my husband. And so like if he can't hurt me, he's gonna go to the next place that that will hurt me. And if, if he can't if, if I do the defiant thing where I pretend like uh, I'm not affected, go ahead and give me your worst, then I'm no longer fun. So he's gonna move to the next the next thing that will get me and nothing is off limits. There's my husband, there's my children, there's my grandchildren, there's nothing that's off limits. And, uh, yeah, so Mm -hmm. it is, it's scary and and I've made actual modifications to the security of my home because of that, because of that fear. That's awful. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and it's hard too because I, I mean a lot of times that I don't know if 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 you have family surrounding you at this time, but one of the things that you go through as a kid and and also in the church is is you you know for instance if we're talking about LGBT, you know LGBTQIA rights and somebody's up there at the pulpit bad mouthing it and nobody says anything, you kind of look around going oh everyone's okay with this mm-hmm. and a lot of what I went through as a kid was everyone was watching and the only thing that anybody would really do was grab the dog's collar because if my dog interfered with my dad hitting me, he'd kick her. Yeah. And in my mind, I'm going, well, that's fair because the dog didn't do anything wrong. And I'm going, "Now as an adult, I'm like, the hell? Like, I actually was like, thank goodness they're protecting the dog. Mm. But meanwhile, I'm I would get hit if I flinched. I would get hit if I ran. I had to stand there and just wait and make sure that, you know, I took it and then didn't fight back and only left when he excused me because there were times when he would hit me and tell me to sit down and eat my dinner and i'd be sitting there like choking and like sobbing while i'm trying to and he would demand that i eat 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 your dinner and i would just be humiliated and everyone else would just kind of go back to eating and nobody would be like the hell is wrong with you it was just all right well kate did it again i guess we'll uh we'll just finish up our meal here um so you really start to to look around at other people, and I'm sure you felt that way, Dana, where you're going, why isn't anybody doing anything? Even though you know how terrifying he is, you would think, but if everyone said this is some bull crap? like, wouldn't, why wouldn't everyone step up and say something? Wouldn't they mm-hmm. have strength in numbers, you know? Yeah, yeah awesome. exactly.
0: Are you talking about unionizing I, the family? <laughs> you right, know, collective right, bargaining, sure. we gotta, gotta help the but family. But they had their
2: pecking order, and they wanted to keep the totem pole, <laughs> you know, stacked the way it was stacked so it's yeah. i don't know if that's the dynamic that you're experiencing dana if he, if he has that power and everybody else is like well he's got the money or he's got the influence or he's just scary is that the vibe you get they yeah they don't they don't want
1: the wrath mm-hmm. of this person they'll do anything to avoid the wrath of this person and then you know all of my siblings have experienced extreme Abuse, you know, the ex- extreme sexual abuse, extreme domestic abu- abuse, and so um, all of us have have uh, we're adults who are still sort of living somewhere on the spectrum of of abuse. We're still responding in abusive. Ways. I, I don't even really know how to explain that, where it sort of feels like I have woken up and I'm standing on the outside of the bubble, and when I look in, I can see how everyone's still trying to maintain peace in this abusive atmosphere, um, not realizing how they're participating in it,
3: mm-hmm. yeah.
1: or, or how they're still responding with an abused child mindset. And I think that they're looking at me as being rebellious. Dana's gone overboard again. Dana just has to do everything so dramatic and whatever. That's fine. It's fine if they feel that way. But I think a lot of times there's this dynamic of trying to get the approval of the parent or the parents, plural. And even if you don't, even if you're a grown-ass adult with children yourself, there's still a part of every person somewhere in them that is desiring the approval of their parents. And so in our family, it's, it's easier to be the one who is, is trying to get that approval than to be someone who is on the outside because I'm on the outside. And what that means is I'm 100% on the outside. My mom is not allowed to come to my home. My siblings, you know, so they don't see, you know, they don't see how that is abusive. And I have gone to them and tried to make the offer, look, there's seven of us. We can stand together with our spouses and be a family. But that was completely rejected. And mm-hmm. And that's all I can do. Mm-hmm. So I sit on the outside of the bubble and I wait until their bubble is burst and and that's that's just how we're doing it.
0: Well, they isolate yeah. you, right? You're isolated. You're isolated and made to feel alone so that uh, you just feel like you're wrong. and the only way to get back inside the circle is to apologize is to own whatever it's to it grovel. is gravel right, mm-hmm. to grovel.
1: If but, I come back,
0: yeah, but if they, I
1: come back not, groveling, yeah. yeah if yeah. I apologize hard enough, if I admit how bad and wrong and all of that yeah. that I am, then I can have a seat at the table. Yeah. And I'm sitting here saying, "Fuck you. I'm not having a seat at your table mm-hmm. until you get rid of that guy." Yeah. And so, I have felt kind of betrayed, you mm-hmm. know. How come they're choosing him over me? But
0: well, they don't whatever. want to be the next one, right? They don't want they don't want to be the next victim or the next scapegoat. You know, they're gonna keep their heads down so that they don't turn into Dana.
2: Yeah. Well, it's, it's fascinating because this is this is the only end for you.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. There's no other uh, other no other way for you.
1: Mm-hmm. I have two siblings still who who I speak to and everything, but but one of them is also a scapegoat. You know. And, and the other one was the um, the son of my dad and my stepmom, and so he was raised in a whole different household from all of the rest of us. He's the only one who was raised over in another house with a with a different mom. So I'm I'm still connected to him, and I'm connected to to my youngest sister because she was also a scapegoat, and she has also put her foot down. And because of that, the two of us are these two dramatic sisters who are so much and so emotional and such a problem. And, of course, the two of us would would join up together, you know. Good. Uh, I'd rather do that than, than be kissing ass and trying for approval for the rest of my life. Yeah, I will never. I mean,
2: I, it's sad that I have a parallel experience, but it's. It, it's kind of the way the way these things end. Um, mm-hmm. And when I left the church, all of my liberal leanings, you know, got fortified. And I remember the the proposition. I don't think it was a proposition. It was some sort of voting in the year 2000 for you know anti-gay marriage in uh, California. And I thought, I don't care. I don't care who gets married. And I was mm-hmm. kind of railroaded by my family, and they were like, No, there are all these reasons that gay people shouldn't be allowed to get married. And I was like not gonna vote on that, you know. Like I I was in Utah anyway, so I didn't get to vote, and I'm glad that I didn't. But um then Prop 8 came out and I hated every minute of that. I felt like I definitely got strong armed into doing it. And I live with the guilt of supporting that. And and it was interesting because I would go door to door and I was that person who would get run off of people's porches because I was trying to explain to them how they needed to vote because it was a confusing proposition. So they'd be like, I support gay marriage. I'm voting yes. And I'm like, no, let me tell you. If you support gay marriage, you need to vote no. And they're like, that's not true. You're such a homophobe, bitch. Get off my boat. But I'm like, I swear to God, you just supported it without even realizing it because they were voting for the amendment, which meant yes. Against the amendment said no. And I'm trying to explain this to them because I you know, value people's votes and I wanted them to be informed, but I wasn't there to convince anybody because I didn't believe in it. I thought it was awful. I didn't want to do it. Um so then as you know time went on and I actually ended up leaving the church, um, sadly because you know I was sitting across from a friend of mine who, you know, in his late thirties was coming out for the first time and he wasn't Mormon. And he said, You're the one I'm scared to tell the most. And I said, Well why? And he's like, Because of the stuff you say online about and you support prop eight. And I just thought, oh my God, I suck. Like, I I really need to check where my feet are on this. And it started to unravel a lot because I saw this man who wasn't religious and wasn't in a high demand culture, but he was the most amazing human being. And I wanted him to be happy and loved. And it just shifted everything for me to realize, like, no one should live alone and in fear. And I contributed to that. So when I left the church, you know, I, I. was finally allowed to be open and be real about the fact that I supported gay rights, that I support minorities' rights, that I support immigration, that I want you know there to be more equity in the country. And, um, and in 2016, and by the way, I just want to add that that I don't think I don't think my dad can be mad about any of this because he actually bragged about being a strong father and everything that that ultimately led to our separation is church sanctioned. So he could tell himself that he's a good father and a good Mormon because we were sitting at the table at Thanksgiving and all of my siblings had kind of distanced themselves from the holiday, the holidays at all. They, they moved, they moved across the country and suddenly stopped coming home for the holidays because it was so toxic. So they would come home in like the off season when things weren't as stressful or, or sentimental. Um, But they still expected me, the one who lived in the area to make every, every holiday, like Memorial day. I mean, every holiday had to be involved with my parents and supported. And one Thanksgiving, I was, you know, after making the entire meal and sitting, inviting them to my home, in my home, my dad proceeded to bag on feminists and bag on minorities and then started bagging on who he calls the gays, which made me want to throw up. But I'm sitting there trying to gray rock him. And gray rocking is when you just kind of nod. You don't go, oh, that's so interesting. Tell me more. Like, not, you cannot have any real reaction to what they're saying. It's just, oh, yeah, I've heard you say that before. Oh, yeah, that's you probably heard that from O'Reilly. Okay, yeah, that was on Fox News. I remember that. Like, just very like bland, bland remarks. But I noticed that my sons were overhearing all of it, and I remembered, you know, that that very stark feeling of being, you know, sitting at that table and being forced to eat my food while nobody stood up for me going, I guess everybody agrees because nobody's doing anything. And I realized like my sons are watching me not do anything with their grandfather, basically
4: acting like a pig at the Mm -hmm. table in my home, eating my food. So,
2: um, I thought it over for a few days and, you know, I called my mom over. I said, we need to talk. I said, I can't, I've given you chances. I've, We've taken breaks before, and we've had our differences, and I've tried to voice my boundaries and say we don't talk politics, we don't talk the church. Um, I've said it several times, and and he doesn't listen, and he is getting more and more offensive to try to get a reaction out of me, and I cannot do this anymore. And um, she said, well, you know, it'll be interesting to see how your life turns out then. And I I thought, well, Mom, we can still have a relationship, though. Like, it's going to be fine. And she's like, well, I think you need to be more forgiving and accepting. And I said, well, I can do that over here while he's over there, you know. But I can't, you know, he betrays confidences. He goes up and tells people that I've said things that I didn't say. Like, he is stirring up problems with my friends and even in my marriage. Like, his things are getting kind of strained. And she just said, you know, well, you wouldn't even have the life you had if it hadn't been for your father. Okay. Like, he paid for a lot of stuff or whatever. And I just thought, well, you're kind of going back. You know, like, the last time you paid for something was my wedding. And she's like, yes. And you wouldn't have had your marriage if it wasn't for him. And I just thought, oh, you're digging. Mm-hmm. You're really digging. So I said, look, I, I just can't do this. I really, really can't. He's disrespectful in my home, and he's a bad example. And she left. And, and it's funny because like the, the totem pole started tilting. You know, like When I imagine the totem pole, I imagine I'm on the bottom. You know, like my, doll. my dad's on the top, and then there's my, the golden brother, the golden sister, the other brother, my mom, the dog, and then me. So like that's how I imagined the structure to be, and when I kind of like kicked myself out from under and was like, all right, go be the happy family now, you guys. Like you guys can all have the problem person out of out of the equation, and I'm fine with that. Um, Then the 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 pressure started from the siblings. That was like, that's not right of you, and you need to come back, and you're disloyal, and let's forgive, and why can't you? I think the advice I was given from one sibling was, you need to follow the Instagram account um, called Shit My Dad Says, and I'm like what's on that oh his dad's super racist and super sexist but it's kind of funny and like maybe you should just accept like your dad just says shit he just says shit and you just have to accept that he's never going to change and he's old and you know shit my dad says Kate and I'm like I can't have him saying that stuff in front of my kids though mm-hmm. and he's like oh your kids will understand and it was just this big thing of like we don't want to deal with it we're over here in our, in our states away living states away not coming home only for a weekend if we want to um, but if you can just keep, keep them happy so that we don't feel obligated on the holidays, that would be great. And it was just this, uh, tons and tons of pressure. And every single time they called, it was a conversation about this. And there were three of them. So every single time I heard from one of them we're having this conversation about, you know, me, I, me being difficult and me accepting that I have to, you know, be a cog in the wheel. And, and me continually saying, no, I have two sons. They're both on the spectrum. I have a high-stress... You know, my husband has a high-stress, high-risk job. I, I don't know if you guys care, but every time he goes to work, I don't know if he's coming home. Like, that's a lot to deal with. His schedule is crazy. Um, I'm also dealing with my own trauma and my own my own stresses. And, um, and it finally got to the point where, you know, I sent an article to them just desperate for them to understand it, and it was about abuse reversal. And abuse reversal is mm-hmm. perfect for what the church can do and what a a narc can do where, you know, they're the big bad baddie, right? Like, they're so tough and they're so smart and they're so pure and they're so, like, above reproach. But if you push back a little bit and go, yeah, but that was kind of mean, then the, they say, Oh my gosh, how could you be so mean to me? I'm such a victim. Somebody come defend me. This person's crazy. I can't believe this is happening. This is so unfair. Oh my gosh, like I can't believe how victimized I am. And so I, I sent them this article on on abuse reversal and I was like and I told them, I'm like, Dad did this shit when I was eight. Like he acted like a victim of a child and mm-hmm. has basically decided that I am the monster of the family and I just want you guys to stop this pressure campaign. I just need you to stop it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after a lot of words were exchanged and a lot, you know, uh, there were confessions of like, yeah, we know you were abused. We saw it. We know. But it's time for you to move forward and get over it. And I just said, I'm not going to do that No, because even though he can't haul off and hit me anymore, the tactics are still there. And he's Mm -hmm. still he's still trying to undermine me and degrade me and insult me every chance he gets. I can't have this in my life anymore. I can't have my son seeing it. And it was like, well, then I guess we agree to disagree, take care. Mm. So I don't speak to any of them. Haven't had a check-in from any of them. Um, My father then decided to start texting my husband and be friends with him. And my husband's like, what the hell is this? And I'm like, oh, you're about to get used, buddy. Like, buckle up. It's going to be fun. And sure enough, like, he actually had to tell him, like, you haven't even checked in. You haven't even asked me how my wife and children are. Yeah. Oh, you just want to be a buddy on this, but yeah. you don't even care about my wife and children.
3: Yeah.
2: And he said, you know, I, I hope they're okay. I hope, I hope they're fine. He said, yeah, I don't think you really care. And he's like, and please don't contact me anymore. And please stop showing up uninvited because they would do that before um, mm-hmm. the big falling out. And he, he said, if you, don't, if you continue to harass me or my wife, like, we're going to seek out a restraining order. And he was like, oh, okay, I'll just go ahead and tell your, tell your workplace that you're this, this, and this, and file a complaint against you at work. And I just thought, here's my life. Like, we need my husband's benefits. My child's a diabetic. My children are on the spectrum. We need all the support. And he literally went for that jugular. He didn't ultimately fall through on that. But I had to like beg my siblings, like, please do something. He's unhinged. Like, he could he could really cause a lot of problems for us. And one of my siblings came back with, okay, but you're gonna have to earn my trust back first.
1: Oh my god. Yeah. This is what I was saying about how dangerous it can be. You know, if if you go back and forth with them, mm-hmm. they they double down and double down and double down, and you can find yourself in an actual dangerous and scary place. Mm-hmm. That I mean, I mean, I'm I'm just totally relating because uh, I have had to sort of go away and. Even though everything I'm doing, I'm I'm doing it out loud, I'm doing it publicly, I'm also kind of trying to keep this barrier where I'm not threatening his reality too much because I can't handle that fallout right now either. And so, yeah, and then the other siblings wanting to go along with it to you know I, for a long time I felt like they you know th- I didn't want them to have to go through this kind of thing so I was fine if it was directed at me or my other sister or actually my other sister too I have two sisters um You know, we would all take turns taking the blame for something when we were little. We kind of tried to cover each other and try to minimize as much damage as as we could. But now that we're all adults, I'm like, all right, if you're co-signing his behavior, my life is now in danger because anything I tell you, I have evidence that it's going back to Mm -hmm. him. And then that creates actual danger for me, like danger, like you're saying with your husband's job, like it's, it, it becomes real. It's not just words anymore, but it's actions that can, that, that can actually harm
2: you.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, they just change tactics. And that's, and I think that's the hard thing is that, you know, the people who are in the system and this, this is true for people, a lot of people who stay in Mormonism, not everyone, But they feel very sainted in doing that. But, you know, but look how amazing I am for, yes, the church has its faults, or yes, this person has their faults, but aren't I so Mm long-suffering, and aren't I so loving, and aren't I so strong? And so they really do tell themselves that story that it's not about that they're propping up a corrupt system, they're being this really loving person. Mm -hmm. And so when you try to explain to them that you're actually enabling and you're actually pushing this person to steamroll others, um, that's a discomforting thing. That's very uncomfortable for them too, because you know, I remember trying to point this out with with a lot of cer- with a lot of behaviors, suddenly it was, are you calling us a co abuser? Mm-hmm. Are you saying we abused you too? And that's the whole victim you know, the whole uh what was it, abuse reversal thing where I'm like, no, I'm just saying yeah i guess i'm saying that you know what i mean like if you want to change my words fine we're it's it's this is a toxic abusive system and i feel like i'm at the brunt of a lot of it and i just don't want to do it anymore and it was the whole like falling down and how could you do this to me i kind of refer to them as soccer players you know like the the slightest breeze and they're just toppling to the ground and hoping they get the the foul called you know it's Mm -hmm. with narcissists like there's no they will even when they're being victimized they will profit off of it yeah they will find a way to further entrench themselves and get others to further entrench themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately it just keeps them fed. Keeps yeah. them really, really happy.
0: Well, the threats, the threats, the constant threats, the intimidation, um, it, it, it was actually something that your dad said, you know, he actually said the words that he would, what he would do, you know, going for the jugular, he said, um, reporting your husband or whatever, um, for his, for his, uh, career. Um, but in the church there's it's also like that so if you start speaking up if you if you try to defend yourself if you speak up they're going to do what they need to do to be able to threaten you to be able to to be quiet again and so they threaten your membership which then threatens your eternal salvation which then threatens all of your uh, relationships with every family member that's going to continue staying in the church which then isolates you and makes you weak so the church did the same thing with the letter that I wrote to them. Um, I kept asking where it was about um, my abuse from my stepdad. They wouldn't, they wouldn't tell me. I kept calling. And then what do they do? They have a paralegal from Curtin and McConkie call me. Now, if that's not um, a covert threat, sure. you know, they're trying to make it seem like, oh, well, we just want to hear your story so that we know we have it, um, whatever. They, they wanted me to tell her all my story. And I'm just like, no, this is, this is abusive. This is a threat from you telling me that you want to be, you want me to be quiet.
2: Yeah, and there's and there's that you know, the one thing that Nash love to do is the whole destabilize,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and a lot of that is by you know, oh now now this other person knows what you told me, and this other person knows, and you can go ahead and tell them, they'll be the arbiter of whether or not you can be believed because Mm -hmm. they're trying to discredit you, like, oh, you wanted to sin, or maybe you participated in what you were going through, or maybe you didn't run and fight and kick like you should have. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember going through that um, with a narc boyfriend that I had that was, you know, I, I denied for probably 15 years that he had assaulted me the way that he had because in my mind, I had participated, I'd given him the opportunity, I hadn't fought, I even after the, I stayed with him, you know, mm-hmm. we were still in that relationship because the, the golden child, for the most part, in the Mormon church are men. Like yep. cis males are like the golden children. And, mm-hmm. you know, but a female is a temptress and she's the one that has to safeguard chastity. And if something happens and she didn't fight hard enough, because men can be men, it's just weird, like, you know, double bind where it's like men are really animals. And they can't be expected to control themselves after a certain point, but they're also godly, and you need to obey them. And it was really difficult for me to put that together because I think I, I, a lot of that happened with my dad, where it was like once he got to a certain anger point, then that was my fault that everything just kind of spiraled. You know, the whole like men can only control themselves. It, it didn't only it didn't translate to mere sexuality for me. It translated to any sort of elevated emotion from a man. then he he couldn't be expected to adhere to decency and not be violent. It just wasn't... Men had all these excuses in the Mormon church, and any woman who kind of stood up about it was emotional. You know, we've heard that from what American societies yeah. do. You're emotional, you're hysterical, go calm down, you know, and you're just, you're discredited immediately.
0: Yeah. You become the scapegoat, so, right? You become yeah. the scapegoat. Yeah. I...
1: So, I was just thinking, um, would you mind... Giving a definition of of a narcissist, like how how does somebody know if they're dealing with a narcissist versus someone who's just full of full of themselves? Or a, the diagnosis. Let the record show that Kendra just held up the DSM-5
0: for my psych program. That Are you I, looking it up? You go there. I am. I'm going there. Okay. So um, it is a personality disorder.
1: But will you explain for people what a personality disorder is? Because I, this is something that I learned at 46 years old.
0: Well, this is I really, not this is really long. <laughs> Let's see. It's on page 645, if that tells you how many, how much information is in this. So, um, a personality disorder. The general definition of a personality disorder that applies to each of the ten specific personality disorders. A personality disorder is an enduring pattern of inner experience and behavior that deviates markedly from the expectations of the individual's culture, is pervasive and inflexible, has an onset in adolescence or early adulthood, is stable over time, and leads to distress or impairment. So, um, general personality disorder, paranoid personality disorder, schizoid personality disorder, Schizotypal Personality Disorder. <laughs> so which one was he? Antisocial Personality Disorder, Borderline Personality Disorder, Histrionic, Narcissistic Personality Disorder. Here, we, Here go. we go. Ding, ding, ding. All right. So a pervasive pattern of grandiosity in fantasy or behavior. A need for admiration and lack of empathy. Um, sorry, let me, let me go back. A need for admiration. They have a lack, a lack of empathy. Beginning by early adulthood and present in in a variety of contexts, as indicated by five or more of the following. Um, He has grandiose sense of self-importance, exaggerates achievements and talents, expects to be recognized as superior without commensurate achievements. Number two, is preoccupied with fantasies of of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love, Um, or going to the celestial kingdom oh, sorry, it doesn't say that in the book, (laughs) (laughs) believes that he or she is special and unique and chosen, oh, just kidding, sorry, and can only be understood by or should associate with other special or high-status people or institutions. Number four, requires excessive admiration. Number five, has a sense of entitlement. Unreasonable expectations of of especially favorable treatment or automatic compliance with his or her expectations. Number six is interpersonally exploitative, Uh, takes advantage of others to achieve his or her own ends. Number seven, lacks empathy, is unwilling to recognize or identify with the feelings and needs of of others. Um, And I'm going to say not just unwilling, but maybe unable, and I'm correct in the DSM-5. You like that? Um, <laughs> number eight uh, is often envious of others or believes that others are envious of him or her and number nine shows arrogant haughty behaviors or attitudes
1: yeah
4: pretty much
1: yeah you can beat your head against the wall trying to get them to understand and to change but that this is not something that that gets changed
2: yeah, a lot of people think that. Um, yeah, I think the hardest part is that the the narc will. Yeah, you know, we've all talked about. I'm sure plenty of people who are ex Mormon um, have ex themselves. Um, you know, you know about love bombing and you know about future faking and that idea that that glow of that human who comes in and is like. You're so amazing, and I'm so interested in you. And what more do you have to say? And I'm checking in with you as soon as you wake up, and saying good night, and buying you things. And I want the, I want us to have a house. I want us to have 20 kids, 50 kids. I want us to have all the dogs, like whatever the case may be. They build this beautiful picture, and then shut that down very, very quickly. And you start chasing that, and you start working for that, and you start trying to earn that back. Um, you know, but the thing is that that future faking can happen throughout the relationship. And, and I know that I experienced it in Mormonism and throughout my relationship with my dad. It was this whole, like, uh, like if we got into an argument, um, he would shut down sometimes and go, well, I was going to apologize for my behavior, but you just had to get crazy. And I'd be like, great. Like you were, so oh, you were so close to having me be a great dad to you. Dang it. Uh, <laughs> Really would have loved to have been that for you. And we have that a lot in Mormonism, you know, where it's like, oh, did you want that blessing? Oh,
0: my gosh. You didn't say your prayers. You didn't do all the primary answers. So you don't, you know, you just can't get it.
2: No, and I remember my, this was kind of people, it's funny when you step outside of the family and you actually start talking to people about your experience and they say, your dad said what? Mm-hmm. Um, my dad a lot of times would say, you know, little girls are supposed to worship their dads. You're supposed to worship me. And I just thought, Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll try. You know, so I he'd come home from work, and I'd be like, "Hey, Dad, how's it going?" And he's like, "Whatever, just give me a coke." So even though I would try to be that little girl who's like, "Oh my God, I'm so glad you're home," mm-hmm. um, it, he didn't want that. And you know that song, like "I'm so glad when Daddy comes home."
0: I was just thinking. Well, should we all sing it? <laughs> well, I know,
2: it? It's like when you what you climb upon his knee and like pat his chest. Yes. I'm like, that wasn't my house. Um, <laughs> no. But you know, what's 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 sad, and it, it is kind of sad, but um. But it's true that narcissists are created. Um, they're not born. and so it, it is a, it, it's an environmental response, you know that and usually what's sad is that usually the golden children are the one who become narcissists. Mm. Right, you know, scapegoats are usually the apathetic you know trash can that got everything dumped into them so it doesn't serve them, they leave, they go off and they have lifelong anxiety. They're just that's their life, uh, unfortunately. but with with narcissism and why this is so important and why this happens a lot in the mormon church is that it's created by a high demand high achievement oriented environment and where it's it's very fuck your feelings get your shit done Mm -hmm. and so you're not allowed to be upset about anything have anybody really support you or mirror you when you need you know someone to be sympathetic or caring it's all about you know People really show up for you when you make your accomplishments. So you start realizing the only way to get attention is to do and accomplish something, Mm -hmm. and that's huge in Mormonism. I mean, all we're doing is getting medals and getting stamps and moving on and progressing and improving our worthiness constantly. So it is. It becomes kind of this hotbed of of shame and achievement, Mm -hmm. and I feel really bad for men in the church, especially because. I feel like they get a lot more shame than we do because of, you know, just the sexual bombardment constantly of being told like, don't masturbate, don't masturbate. I don't remember getting lessons like that.
3: Mm-mm.
2: I didn't even know what that was and or the girls could even do that. You know, it was just not a subject. But in talking to other men, they're like, oh no, starting at the age of like ten. We were constantly told that we were disgusting if we wanted to or if we did and And yet, we were told we were going to be God someday. So, that paradoxical Mm -hmm. double bind that they're in of like, you're a disgusting human being, prove that you're not, is just a hotbed for creating little narcissists.
0: Well, what's the scripture? Do you know what scripture I'm thinking about? The natural man is an enemy to God. Yeah. So. My favorite
2: one was, you're less than the dust of the earth. Oh, that's That's my favorite.
0: Yeah, that's lovely. But if the natural man is an enemy to God because the natural man does things that are sexual, you know, they self-soothe, they do whatever, whether it's masturbation or going and having sex with people. um, It's self-soothing and it's natural. It's the natural man. So we're all an enemy to God, but really God is the enemy to natural man, is my opinion at this point. (laughs) Oh,
2: absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, I I mean, obviously, I think anybody who starts a religion and thinks that they're God's mouthpiece is a grandiose, probably more Mm -hmm. of a malignant narcissist, and then they create that God in their image. I mean, Joseph Smith created himself as God. Mm -hmm. You know, just this incredibly exacting, this, I mean, it wasn't that, I don't even think Joseph Smith thinks that God's that way, but that's exactly how Joseph Smith wanted people to behave toward him. Mm -hmm. And so he created this system where everybody was living in fear, nobody could quite win, everyone was kind of confused as to what the rules even are, Mm -hmm. and everyone owed him money.
0: So the rules are always changing. The rules are always changing, and the reason those rules can change is because Joseph Smith was speaking to God. So if God can speak to a prophet, and that person is going to disseminate that information, then why wouldn't we believe it? Yeah,
2: right. And it's interesting. I mean, all the all the tools that that they use, um, you know, the the whole triangulation thing, the whole mm-hmm. the fact that they bring in kind of this imaginary person who agrees with them, or they think that. Yeah, you know, so you feel like you're the one you're the odd one out who's not understood, but everybody else gets it but you. And mm-hmm. if you have questions, why would you question something like that, silly? Nobody mm-hmm. else is questioning anything like that. Everybody else is okay. Yeah. So what's wrong with you? And don't you have enough faith? And it, mm-hmm. it on and on it goes with all of these tactics that they just discredit yourself to yourself. And I think that's mm-hmm. the hardest thing about narcissism is that yeah, other people might buy their line, mm-hmm. but you don't even believe your own thoughts. Yeah. And you don't even believe in what you know of yourself mm-hmm. because they planted this seed of unworthiness and, and inadequacy yeah. in you and this carrot chasing kind of mm-hmm. you know, way of being. And that's just your life is you're chasing this invisible carrot. Yeah. And it seems like everybody else knows the rules, but you, and it's, it's really hard to get that out of yourself to really mm-hmm. step away. And, and why it's so important sometimes to go no contact, mm-hmm. you know, why a lot of times, like even recently I've, I've kind of in a way had to go no contact with the church and say I don't want to I kind of distanced myself from certain chat rooms because I'm like I have to go I have to get this out of my head and get my identity right because Mm -hmm. while I know what happened to me I don't want to live in that and I don't want to give that room anymore so I I could very well go back to it obviously I'm discussing it with you I find it fascinating and Mm -hmm. I'm still growing out of it but going no contact and flourishing in your own thoughts and in your own experience
4: Mm -hmm.
2: is one of the main things that you you have to do to get your identity back and to get your sense of self back
0: definitely
2: getting a good therapist who knows what narcissism is absolutely
0: absolutely you learn to trust yourself in the church you're taught from the beginning you that nothing is attributed to you and your own feelings if you have bad feelings that's of the devil that's satan if you have confusion it's of the devil you're you know you're being influenced by satan if you have good feelings, if you have a burning in your bosom, if you have a release of dopamine in your mind that things are peaceful and good, then that's the Holy Ghost. It's not you. It's not your own intuition. It's you learning how to deny yourself to be able to make decisions for yourself. Because what they do at the point at this point where you were just talking about, by abandoning or isolating or um, making people feel like they're alone and they have no community, so when people leave the church what happens? They have no community anymore. You know, so there a lot of people will go back to the church just for the community. But do you really want to be in a community like that? Like it's it's going no contact like you said. How do you let go of something that has been a part of your whole life from the time that you were little and recognize how abusive it is from from the core of it? And letting go of that and either trusting yourself and being okay with yourself and learning who you are personally or having a community to support you in doing whatever it is that you decide to do, except you can't do whatever you want to do. You have to do what is acceptable in the church. So, exactly.
2: And what kind of you know, helped me make it a bigger step back was uh, thinking about how you know, people pray for me now when you leave the church mm. but what's so unsettling about that is they're praying for my heart to be softened and what does that mean
0: heart failure <laughs> oh, <just kidding>. Sorry.
2: <laughs> but like, this, like they want you when you and then the church it's, it's preached that in order for your heart to be softened you have to be basically tortured You have to have really bad things happen to you for your heart to soften. Mm -hmm. So, like, these people are wishing for my failure, Mm -hmm. for my pain, for my pain to be greater outside than it was inside. And that's their only promise is your shit's going to get fucked up and you'll be sorry and you'll be back. Mm -hmm. Not, Mm -hmm. no, you'll miss the love and you'll miss the hope and you'll miss the faith and you'll miss all these great things. It's like, no, it's just going to get really, really, really bad. You thought it was bad in here? Just wait. We're praying for it to yeah, be yes. absolutely awful for you. Okay. And I have that cautionary tale. Like, I am that cautionary tale. Yeah. I leave the church. My sons get diagnosed as autistic. Wanda gets type 1 diabetes. I lose my family. I, you know, have rocky patches in my marriage, you know, which everybody does. But, of course, they're just like, oh, we'll see what happened to Kate Jeffries. Have you mm-hmm. seen this? Yeah. And now she cusses online, everybody.
0: Yeah. So, and, and it's her own fault. It's her yeah. own fault for leaving the church.
2: Yeah. Autism doesn't happen in the church.
0: No, no. never, no. never. No. Diabetes doesn't. No. Cancer doesn't. No, no. nothing bad happens no. in the church. Right? None of those things. No. And, yeah, and we can attribute that to Satan's influence in your life, you know, right. but once you come back to the church and you start feeling like the church is true again, and you start bearing your testimony and convincing yourself that the church is true, then, then that's the Holy ghost. See, the Holy ghost brought you back. They brought you back but to you the know, church.
2: Just in terms of the shunning that, that Dana was talking about, how you can't come back unless you grovel.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. The church isn't going to just let you wander back in oh, and get right. you your, your, your weird underwear back. No, you have to <laughs> go through the wipeout obstacle course, mm-hmm. get your ass kicked by God and the spirit and, and the bishop. Know, public shaming, all mm-hmm. of it, mm-hmm. in order to really show us that you're sorry.
0: Prove you know? it. Prove it. Prove, it yeah. that, prove that I can trust you again. Right. Where is the unconditional love that the church professes? Where is the unconditional acceptance? All are welcome on their sign, but that's total and utter bullshit. All are welcome to come in and be abused. All are welcome to come in and learn how to not trust yourself anymore. All are welcome to come in and figure out how you can be a part of this community of people who all also denies themselves any um, any. Trust unless any trust of themselves, any credit they can't give themselves credit for any choices that they make it's all attributed to the church. you know, so come in and be a part of this community where we can also make you feel unaccepted and unworthy.
1: Well, you know what I've always wanted to ask is like, imagine that some woman comes into church on Sunday with jeans on. what would happen? <laughs> We should
0: try it. We should. Are we all going to go to the same board, the same building? Oh, there we yeah. go. Yeah, we can all just go in in jeans and tank tops, porn shoulders.
2: There we
0: go. Jeans, tank tops. There we go. Combat I mean, boots.
1: Like, would anybody actually be concerned about us as a person, or would they be like uh, scandalized that we walked into the church with jeans on? Like, okay. when I left. When I left the church, um, my my mom actually left first, and um, I was still in Pengwich. I was in Penguin for a long time, but when I would come up and visit her, one of my favorite things to do was to go to the church that she started going to, Mm -hmm. and the first time I went, I didn't bring a dress to my mom's house, and I was really, really worried because I only had jeans. And she kept saying, don't worry, it's fine. You can go to church with jeans on. It's not It's not a problem. And I, I, I agreed to go, but I, my heart was sick the whole way there, worrying about the fact that I w- was wearing jeans to church. And when I got there, like, women were wearing everything. They were wearing jeans. They were wearing dresses. They were wearing shorts. They were wearing miniskirts. They were wearing ten- tennis shoes. They're wearing whatever they want, and i I remember thinking, "Holy shit, this is awesome like mm-hmm. that that maybe my soul or the way i I feel about myself does actually matter and it was this moment of recognizing how much of my external self was what was important in mormonism mm-hmm. it was It was the clothes, it was my countenance, it was what I projected to other people, Mm -hmm. but no one was actually concerned with me as a human and what was on the inside. So whenever we talk about that sign on the outside of the church, I just think, it's such bullshit because any woman who walked in there in a pair of pants is going to know that
2: they're odd man out mm-hmm. or odd woman out, I guess I should say.
0: Yeah. So in, in any
2: abuse system or the several that I've experienced is that the women are the ones supporting it the most,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, like the fact that my mother was in this abusive marriage with this person mm-hmm. and then was like, okay, your turn and just kind of trotted me, like pushed me in front and just stood there because the heat was off her, and it was just like, well, this is what we do, Mm -hmm. and you know, how many women have we, or like, and I remember talking about sexual assault with someone, and she was like, yeah, she like, left her house in this little black dress to walk her dog, it's like she's asking for it, and I'm like, you as a woman are literally saying that a woman who gets home from a night out and takes her dog for a walk is fair game? Yeah. You know, and the cultural correction that I got came mm-hmm. from women. The, the the pull aside of, like, do you really need to be wearing those heels? Mm. Ooh, that's interesting that you think you can, you know, wear that. That's brave of you. You know, that kind of crap. It came from women.
0: Yeah. It's internalized ultimately. misogyny, right? Oh. I fight that all the time. Yeah. yeah. Then, the ward members, women mostly, will um, chastise and... Uh, shame other women for not wearing appropriate attire, and I actually think that how, how better fitting is that to prove that the church and its people are, have like a narcissistic tendency to say that they accept them unconditionally, but yet can't accept them even on the condition of what clothes that they're wearing, that they have to go home and change to look the part. You know, women. I know a lot of women who um, have bent over backwards to make their family look like it's a perfect little family, and all the kids are perfectly dressed, and their shirts are ironed, and and her and her husband are you know sitting there holding hands and acting the part. But then you look at the uh, the actual situation at home, kind of like what you were talking about. Everybody thought that you were uh, your dad's best friend. You know. What's, hap- what's actually happening at home, and this isn't always. I'm sure there's some families that have all their shit together and their shit doesn't stink, and, yeah. you know. Um, but, but the reality at home is not what you see in the church. So everybody trying to, to live up to this standard that's a superficial standard and not accepting each other on, the, on who we are as a person, because we don't even know who the fuck we are as a person i'm a mormon i belong to the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints follow the prophet all the things you know i i only know who i am because i'm a daughter of god Uh so how can i accept somebody else completely and unconditionally if i don't even accept myself if i don't even know who i am so of course we're going to project that on other people right so we're, we're taught in the church how to have narcissistic behaviors. I can't accept my own problems and my own, um, you know, troubles that I'm feeling and all this, this dissonance that I'm feeling because I don't really believe what I'm saying. But I can project on somebody else because they're wearing a tank top to church. I can project on somebody else because their kids don't look like they've been bathed in a few days or a week, or whatever, you know, that they don't have the right attire. So we're conditioned as Mormons to judge other people so that we don't judge ourselves.
2: Yeah, we, we, we're we taught to deflect, we're taught to mm-hmm. do what-about-isms, what you know, we're taught to, we're taught like, I mean, I know that with, with narcissists especially, they are so offended that you don't try to please them in mm-hmm. every way, shape, and form. So if you show up with the, the nerve to wear pants, it's like, but you know that displeases me, mm-hmm. and why aren't you trying to look and do and think exactly how you, I want you to? Like they mm-hmm. take it absolutely personally as, as a sense of your integrity, even yep. to where you you literally don't have the integrity to mind me and and obey me and just read my mind and know what I want from you. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, so it becomes very, very nitpicky, very, very superficial, and that's the one thing about narcissism that's very true is that they don't like the deeper issues. They don't like deeper emotions. Mm-hmm. They want people who don't emote. Mm-hmm. They want people who don't have problems. They want a blank slate mm-hmm. to put whatever they want on it, and then you're supposed to just kind of be the robot for them.
3: Right.
2: And so when, when you have deeper issues in the church, it's very much like, oh, that sucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you should repent. Right not get you counseling, not go deep with it, not, let's, let's get messy with this and figure out how we can fix it. It's just, oh, yeah. if you could go away with that, that'd be awesome. Cause that's not, that's not fun for me. It doesn't make me look good. Yeah. Yeah. Can you,
1: um, I know that, I know that you did a lot of preparation for this, uh, podcast today. Can you kind of give us things that people can look for both at both, as far as narcissism is con- concerned, and then how how you see um, that the church relates to, to narcissism, like how can people recognize certain things, if that
2: question even makes yeah, sense? it is. Um, I think if the one thing that, that I've come across in talking to so many people who, who have dealt with narcissism is this near constant state of confusion of never knowing which version you're going to get that day. And there's never, you know, and we deal with that with the church all the time. Okay, when are they going to be accepting of people with LGBTQIA community ties? When are they not? And it's just this big whiplash of, see, we were for a minute and now we're not because you guys were bad. And we'll be, we'll be cool for a minute over here, but not for long because you're going to be, because then you're going to get all uppity and you're going to think that you actually have a right to be here. And you know, like this whole like p- push and pull and this constant whiplash based on their moods and um and then of course if they if you see somebody um if they're not picking on you it does feel good to be in the presence of someone picking on someone else that you don't agree with Mm
3: -hmm. we had
2: that with our previous administration you know he people didn't like him but they liked how he attacked people they didn't like and it really emboldened them to also attack people that they don't like. And now we have this very discordant culture and it's really gross and it's really scary, but, but it does feel good. And you can see how they're saying, well, I'm, I like that he's jerked to people that I don't like. So when you see that happening, if you see you're with somebody who might not be, who might be in a good stage with you treating other people like shit,
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know, I've, I've asked this question a lot where, you know, people, it's been suggested, like, oh, your dad's not an abuser. He he was just hard on you. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, how many people does he have to abuse? Yeah. One, like, if someone rapes somebody, they're a rapist. Mm-hmm. Well, no, it was, no, false stop. Right. If someone murders somebody, they're, they're murder- a murderer. Mm-hmm. Like, there's none of this gray area. And so if somebody is going to, in your presence, demonize a whole subset of culture or a whole mm-hmm. subset of human beings or, or make you feel like shit in kind of an underhanded way, you can guarantee that they might not be a narcissist, but they're not a good person for you.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so in terms of narcissism, you know, to sum it up, good luck, I don't even know. Um,
4: for me, it was somebody who talked over everything about me
2: and overlay and put like, I felt like I was a cardboard cutout and he was just slapping bumper stickers all over me. And Mm -hmm. he did that with the golden children too, where I'm like, they're not that much different than I am, but it it was this whole, but they're so good looking and they're so talented and they're so smart and someday they're going to be this great star athlete. And when I'm sitting there going, you have no evidence Mm -hmm. of that either. And so when you see that fiction start coming out where you're like, I don't think what you're saying is really real it might feel good if you're the chosen one for the moment but you can kind of see that they they live in a fiction in their own minds and that if they're ever challenged they will start writing fiction over that Mm -hmm. to win the argument at all costs
0: so even if that means gutting you yeah one of the things that i've noticed also about the church is that there's unclear rules and boundaries So while people may think that they have, um, they understand what's expected of them for the most part, um, the unclear rules and boundaries like caffeine, Ah. you know, coffee, hot chocolate, tea. We're not allowed to drink coffee, hot chocolate, or tea now because it's hot drinks, not because of the caffeine. Um, Before it was about the caffeine, so now you can't have Mountain Dew or... Or Dr. Pepper or these other things. Oh, but now it's okay to have those. And now we're going to put them on BYU's campus. Oh, and, you know, we're all expected, all the boys are expected to wear white shirts to church. um, Even if they're not passing the sacrament. They should be taught really young to start wearing white shirts to church. So even though it's not a commandment, it was a suggestion that is taken as a rule. And it's a, it's a cultural expectation now that if you do not wear a white, church, white shirt to church, you must not be worthy. Um, yeah, of, yeah, they
2: question your character. Right, exactly. exactly.
0: So then um, are, is, the, is the prophet speaking as a prophet or a man? When is he speaking as a prophet? When is he speaking as a man? When is it revelation? When is it not? And if you don't know, it's your fault for not praying about it and not knowing. Another one is porn shoulders. Um, As little girls, we are um, teaching our daughters, and we have been taught to wear shorts to your knees and to not, not show your shoulders, even though you have not made a covenant or a commitment or a promise To the church, you are still being held to this standard that is a unreasonable, unclear rule or boundary that's being imposed on you because of some arbitrary idea that that's what you're supposed to conform to. So our little girls grow up believing that their bodies have to be covered and that if they show their shoulders, then it's our fault. It's our fault that something happened to us. Um, and w- something else you were saying also that was really interesting is that the, um, they don't want us to, to wallow in our, in our um, story. They don't want um, survivors and victims to be talking about what's happening because that also makes it so the church doesn't have this perfect, picture-perfect religion where people are actually being abused in this religion. So what does the church do? It actually makes it so that um, abusive men, abusive women, they go to court and the bishops, the state presidents, will find people in the ward to talk about how all their good qualities, all the amazing things that this person does, so that those letters can be sent to this abuser or sent to the courts to defend the abuser. And in the meantime, what happens to the victim? What happens to the survivor? Well, you're just not believed, and are you sure that's what really happened? And maybe you were mis misunderstanding, and you don't you know you don't really know what's happening. And actually, you probably should read the Miracle of Forgiveness, because what part of this whole situation did you contribute to?
2: Yeah, discrediting. Mm-hmm. You wanted it. You you know. Yep. Or like when anybody just leaves the church. Oh, mm-hmm. it's because you're sinful. You're lazy.
0: Yep. Yep. You're kind of dumb.
2: Yeah. yeah you you didn't, don't get it. Obviously, you, you don't get you. it.
0: You You we all get it. Why
2: don't you like? What's your like? (laughs) How is your brain not right? Like you just, you're honestly just reduced Mm -hmm. to just this bumbling moron who who just can't cut it. I guess. I guess you just can't make the cut. Yep.
0: Yep. And you're isolated. I
2: I wanted to read this
1: conversation that I had on Facebook, and it it was regarding my uncle. So, um, I have. I have like 72 friends in common with my uncle who is dead. So my uncle died by suicide, but his uh, Facebook page was put back up, and it's really strange to me that I have 72 friends in common with him. But occasionally that means that when I have friends in common who start to discuss my uncle, it's, it's usually with this confusion of... Um, how can I love a man who was despicable? And I stumbled upon, upon this conversation that, that these people were having. And um, they were arguing with me about it because I got triggered by their post. And one of the guys said this. He said, sometimes I think our judgments should be based on the net value Was all the positive work of someone worth more than the negative value of his errors? So I said, So where do I fit in as his victim? How much value do you assign to me? It sounds really great to say, It sounds really great to say that when it's a nameless, faceless person, but I'm a real person. How much value do you assign to me and the destruction that Tom wrought on my family, the mm-hmm. relationships that he destroyed? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of that too, where can can we balance this out? If If they have done all of these great things, then does that cover over all the bad things that they do? Mm-hmm. And if you have a work-based religion, where it, it's, it's based on your efforts, on your work, on your calling, on your priesthood, on your blessings, on all the fucking things that you do, then eventually if you just work hard enough, you can cancel out the bad mm-hmm. that, that you do. But what that does is it, it has isolated those of us who are survivors where we're just sort of left out in the cold because somebody else has worked
2: hard enough to make our stories not matter anymore mm-hmm. that's very much a tactic yeah like that that whole and we kind of touched on it earlier where if you criticize a narc and you're like that was that was evil of you oh i guess i'm just some monster who just should go to hell and it's like maybe <laughs> i mean i don't know what the line is but pretty close to it but there's the idea of like black and white thinking that, mm-hmm. that well if there's some good in them then why are you criticizing them at all? Why don't you yeah. just let them live their life? Don't ruin their life over them over them ruining yours. Yeah. What about their life? Why take two lives with it? Like it's so it's so black and white. And it's it's so destructive to victims, to survivors, to anybody who's trying to work through the pain is that mm-hmm. you can't even be angry because you're not seeing the big picture of all the good qualities that they have too. Mm-hmm. And of course it was a white male, am I right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I'm just going to read his comment one more time. He says, "Sometimes I think our judgment should be based on the net value. Was all the positive work of someone worth more than the negative value of his errors?" And he was saying that to me.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: He, it wasn't like I like, like it was just a random person. He was saying that to me.
2: Yeah. So, so I don't like it, it's weird because if you, it's it's so yeah. often in the human experience that you honestly don't understand something until you've been through it. You know, I was like a libertarian, you know, who just thought, like, everyone can fight for their own place in this country. And then my son got diabetes, and I realized, oh, that's not fair. Like, mm-hmm. he's going to be fighting for coverage his whole life, that kind of a thing. So for this person to say that there is, there should be no line and that, that, that your your works count for nothing if they're bad— like, the, that, that's so jarring, because I know that if, if that person, if Tom wasn't a member of the church, if Tom was some dude, some, some person of color in prison who got who got hooked for having too much marijuana, he'd be like, oh, well, wow, that's why you keep the commandments, isn't it? That's why you're a good Mormon, huh? That's why you don't commit crimes, huh? But if it comes to this guy, Tom is like, well, I mean, what are you do? I mean, people make mistakes. You know, it's such it's such whiplash. Like there there is no hard and fast standard. Like you were saying, there is no rule that applies. There's a different set of rules for everybody. Mm-hmm. And i you know, I experienced that in every narcissistic situation where I there was a different set of rules according to how well you pleased the narcissist, and that's all it came down to. Yeah,
3: yeah.
2: Who is the favorite of the moment?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That's it. I'm
4: so sorry, Dana. That's some bullshit. Yeah. I want to find that guy. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, I'm still friends with him on Facebook, so maybe you'll come across something in the future.
0: Okay, so here's our plans. We are going to go to a church building with tank tops and jeans, and we're going to go poop on this guy's lawn.
2: I will, yes, in that order. I I will tell you, I went to a Mormon funeral. I was not appropriately attired,
0: and I did it on purpose. Yes. I do that, too. Well, what is a Mormon funeral? It is not for the dead. It is not for the family. It is for them to make it a missionary experience, to make it a missionary effort. You, you can't just speak about your loved one and have it just be about the loved one. It's, if you want to borrow our building, then you have to allow us to um, condition and um, give propaganda to every family member of yours that is or isn't a, isn't a member. You know, you, it's everything is conditional. Everything is conditional. So yes, you can use our church building. Yes, you can use it for free, but we. Some guy
2: who never met your loved one is going to give a, you know, Uh state conference talk basically. Yep. It's foul. It's so offensive. I remember sitting there going, this guy, like the family maybe got 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then this guy wandered off for 20 on his own. And I'm just thinking this is, this is offensive. Yeah. It is. It's just disgusting. It is. So, but they're, they're, that's the thing with narcissism. They're completely unaware of it. Mm-hmm. They're like, no, this is the right thing to do because it builds my cause. And you know, if you don't get it, then you just don't get it. And what's the, what's the thing that, um, that says, like you choose to be offended. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like putting that off on you. Like I'm sorry you decided to get offended about that. That's yeah. so petty of you.
0: What lesson so, could you have learned? What lesson could you have learned from that experience? If you had a softened heart, yeah. If you softened your heart. Yeah. 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 Because there's those who are called to teach us and there's those who are called to test us, right? There's those. Ew, Ew, I know. You forgot about that one, didn't you? I don't think I've ever heard that before. (laughs) Yeah, when you have a really shitty bishop, when you have a really shitty bishop or a really shitty, sick president, it's not because they're just a, a fucking asshole. It's because they're called to test you they're called to, to make you actually learn a lesson from what it is that they're doing, their abuse, their, you know, disregard of your needs. Yeah. yeah
4: I, ha- I have a question.
1: Um, so when a child is sexually abused, it, you know, the statistics are that it's likely that they'll be abused again in the future. Mm-hmm. And, um, they're sort of opened up for more abuse throughout their life. So, if you have been in this, uh, or raised in a, a family where there was a, a narcissist at the head of the family, are you also more likely to uh, attract other narcissists? And tell us how that works. And
2: was that your experience? Yeah. Um, it's it's interesting because I. I was raised with this idea of don't you dare let anybody disrespect you except me. So like <laughs> I was taught to not take shit from people outside of the family. Um, but at the same time, I was taught just in terms of, of watching my, the dynamics going on and listening to my father very, very closely. You know, I was very um, what's the word I'm looking for here? It was I wasn't hypervigilant. I was just aware all the time of of everybody and reading the room constantly, um, I think it's called neuroception. Hmm. And I learned very quickly that nice people were weak, that nice people were going to get hurt, and that nice people were fake. So if if someone was being hard on me, like especially in the family, it was like, "What? I'm just telling the truth." But if someone was being nice to me, it was like, "Well, I'm just being polite." So the truth was, you know, shitty but the nice things were fake. So when I go out into the world and I'm, I'm looking around at at nice people. I think, what's your angle? What's wrong with you? Why are you being fake? So for, for me specifically, I, it wasn't that I attracted narcissists. I just did not respect kind people. I thought Mm -hmm. that they were weak or fake. Mm -hmm. So I didn't date a whole lot. I wasn't a big, you know, didn't get asked out a whole lot um, in high school, and then in college, I dated here and there, but you know, only had maybe one serious relationship. But when I was in the singles ward, the bishopric kind of started this full court press on me dating this guy, and I thought he was an ass. Like this guy would tease me all the time, and he thought he was so funny, and he put me down in front of people, and I just thought, yeah, you're not my style. Mm -hmm. But the bishopric were like, once you get to know him, though. I know he's tough, but once you get to know him, so they assigned him as my home teacher, and he would show up alone. He never brought his partner. And after a while, you know, I was I was about to move to New York City, and the the like the day before my flight leave left, um, this person, you know, this home teacher called me to see how I was, and I was crying because I had just had this horrible fight with my narc and a sibling, and I was you know kind of distraught. And he said, "I'll come get you. We'll go get some ice cream." And so from there, we kind of kept in touch, and I moved to New York City, and I had my job, and he came out, and he bought, like, lavish meals, and he was very charming, and he was very interested in everything I was interested in, and very supportive of my dream. But as soon as 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 soon as he was going to get back on the plane, he proposed. And I was like, well, it's only been two months, and it's been long distance. So I'm mm-hmm. not thinking that that's a really good idea. And he's like, look, you only get so many chances to you know, with the righteous man. I and mean, if you keep turning down righteous men, then you're not going to end up with anybody and you're not going to go to the celestial kingdom. Now, were you guys taught that?
0: Yeah. 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 Yeah, you yeah. can be an old maid. Yeah. <laughs> like but, Sherry you know, do. <laughs> you can't
2: just keep tossing righteous men aside. You can't be picky mm-hmm. because then God won't give you any more chances and you're screwed. Yeah. You'll end up being a second, third, fourth, fifth, thousandth wife to somebody else mm-hmm. in heaven. Yeah. No, I was tired that you had to be an administering angel. Like, you wouldn't even oh. get the
3: ordinance.
2: Oh. Uh, You're not even going to get the ordinance. I was taught that
1: I would be an extra. And then I <laughs> didn't want to be an extra. Because, see, in our family, I come from Heber C and his first wife, the late. Okay. And in our family, that was a big deal to be from the first wife because the first wife is the one who counts. And all yes. the other wives are just awesome. supporting roles. They're just providing children. They're populating the man's planet that he's going to inherit. <laughs> and,
0: wait, no, no, no. That's, no. that's no longer a promised blessing. That was that was said as a man. The prophet uh, didn't say we could get, well, get our own planet.
1: I was raised to believe it, I was <laughs> Well, I was never going to get a planet. I was, uh, I was seeking to be the first wife, yes,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and not given to one of the extras. Yeah. Right. Like given as one of the extras. Yeah. My grandma. Go right. ahead. Sorry. Um, my, I. This was my very first problem with the church, being little, and I would tell my grandma about it, and she would say, um, "Well, what if your sister?" was was like really heavy and she wasn't attractive and so she could never get a husband, wouldn't you want your sister to enjoy the same eternal blessings that you have? So right. you'll be fine sharing your husband with your sister once we get there and you realize how wonderful it is. And I always thought, uh... I'm pretty sure I'm not going to want to share my husband with my sister, even if she's heavy and and unattractive and never finds a man to take her to the temple. I was like, then I would have felt like all this pressure that I better get my sister married because if I, if I don't get her married, then she's going to have to be like our our second wife. And I, I wasn't down for that. Oh,
0: well, it's just oh. you're having to fit into um, the square peg into a round hole. Is that the right term? Everyone has to be um, the looking perfect on the outside. So somebody saying that your sister wouldn't be married to somebody if she was fat and, and ugly or whatever or unattractive, that's bullshit because yeah. they're trying to make it seem like every person has the same preference for the size and shape of um their partner's body. It it makes us believe that we all have to conform and be a specific way and look a specific way to be able to be uh, accepted or even chosen within the church. You're yeah. not just innately your own uh you're not just innately worthy because you're a human being. You have to earn it by looking the part and doing all the things.
1: Yeah. Okay, so So he's proposed
2: to you, and then what happens? Um, So I say, I turn him down, and I just say, you know, I'm going to spend some more time in New York. It's kind of a lifelong dream, and I really think it's important that I see what comes of it. And um, the pressure continues, and he's he's like, you've got to pray about this. You've got to pray about whether you need to come home and get married, because that's your priority, and that's what you're here to do. So I need you to pray about it. And so I did, I did, I fasted for like two days, and I, I had the feeling like you need to go back to LA, but not for him, but you should go back, like for whatever reason. So I felt right about it, I get I get home, and um, it was my sister's wedding, and all of these these relatives are grilling him, because a lot of my relatives actually really fucking love me, like they're like, you're so, you're the most interesting one, or whatever, you're just so interesting and funny and all sorts of stuff, so one of my you know, relatives pulled him aside and was like, so what's, what's up? What are you going to do? He's like, well, I want to marry her. And he's like, she's like, cool. How are you going to provide for her? I hear you don't have a job. And he's like, well, I got laid off a little bit ago, but I'm trying to do this and that. And so he felt humiliated by this. And I didn't know that, but he felt absolutely humiliated. I thought it was cute. I thought it was funny. Um, well, that night after helping clean up, I, you know, cause we have to do all the work for weddings and gyms. Um, He, you know, I said I had a really bad headache, and I think we helped a friend with a flat tire too. So I was just dying, and he gave me some, he gave me some pills, and I took the pills, um and I woke up with him on top of me, and my pants were gone, and I was still wearing my undies, um and he was like, basically dfing like dry fucking me through his jeans, and I just kind of was out of it. I didn't really know what was going on, and he was kissing me, and I was just kind of like, what is going on? And then he, he. He finished in his pants and it
4: was like oh i can't believe we got carried away mm-hmm. and i thought
2: is that what happened like i couldn't mm. figure out what had happened i had no memory i was really fogged he was like yeah you were totally into it it was just we just got carried away and i just thought okay i guess okay you know i might have happened whatever and he said well we have to go to the bishopric right, to talk about this cause we have to work this out as a couple and I immediately was like this was my fault I fell asleep in his bed that was it I fell asleep in his bed and he said something like and you're just so hot and irresistible so i was supposed to take this as a compliment and I made myself vulnerable to someone I trusted so what was he supposed to do right guys like it, I mean how could he possibly have stopped himself there I was this beautiful woman that, you know, that he thought was beautiful that I'm lying in this bed and then all of a sudden this happens and I go to the bishopric. I did not say a single word. I was completely shut down and that he, he did all the talking and he said, yes, I, I, she and I got carried away and I eventually ejaculated in my pants and I'm sitting there like, God, this is gross. Like just mm-hmm. dying from wanting to be sick and not knowing what had happened and yet being told that we were like a team on it. And the bishop, of course, I'm thinking has the power of discernment. So I'm feeling like a hoe. You know, so now like, is he thinking that I'm dirty and I'm gross and I've never been, I've never been in the bishop's office for that reason. And I'm like 24 years old and I've never had this issue with any other guy. Um, So he said, okay, well, you guys just don't get carried away again. You know, like take all the measures you need to take to make sure this doesn't happen again. So that was when the narcissistic abuse really started ramping up. Like he, he wanted me over at his house all the time, but he would give me the silent treatment. He wanted me to, you know, read his mind and know what he needed, and I could never quite get it right. He wanted me to gain weight because he, to put it in his words, he liked brown girls, so he wanted to see if I would gain weight like a brown girl. And that meant he wanted someone with a big butt Mm -hmm. and big boobs, but I didn't gain weight like that, so then he immediately put me on, like, diuretics, diet pills, and I'm, this poor thing like i've given up my dream in new york i've given up my job i've given up my apartment i'm living with my parents again and i'm looking at the situation like desperate for him to come back and be the golden person that he was before and feeling like humiliated and lost and my i was constantly confused if you like he would give me the silent treatment and i would say what's wrong he's like oh we're we imagining that something's wrong now kate is that what we're doing and i'm like you don't have to talk to me like that. And he's like, talk to you like what? I didn't say anything. What did I say? How did I say it? Oh, are you you think that I'm being degrading to you? How am I being degrading to you? In what way? What did I say? How did I say it? And you're sitting there going, I'm just inundated with this awful human mm-hmm. all of a sudden. And as time went on, we um, I got I got sick. I was actually going home from work sick. And I stopped by because he was on the way home. And I said, yeah, I think I'm coming down with something. And he said, okay, here, why don't you just take this? So I took it, whatever these pills were, and I woke up to him on top of me
4: again, doing what he was doing. And my pants were gone. And
2: as soon as he's finished, he gets off me, gets off the bed, tells me to close my eyes so he can change, and is yelling at me, like, you keep doing this. Why do you keep doing this? You have issues. You seriously are destroying our relationship. You need to go talk to the bishop. I'm not going to the bishop again. You need to go talk to the bishop and repent. And in the meantime, I'm in this drugged out stupor, just hearing that booming voice, just like unable, like it was coming through a a tube or something. Like I couldn't quite understand what was happening. And he said, get in the car. So he gets me in the car. And I'm like hunched over the door trying to stay awake. And he's yelling at me the whole way home. And how if I don't change, then he's, he, you know, he's not going to have a choice but to break up with me. And he wanted to be with a righteous person. And he didn't want to be with someone who was so sexual all the time that I'm just driving home trying to keep my head up. And, you know, realizing, like, this is a really bad situation. And how am I going to get out of it? And how am I going to explain to my parents that i I was this independent person who gave up my dream for this loser, this unemployed loser, you know? And, and how embarrassing is that? And I remember going to my mom. and I remember it's like I was shaking because I didn't quite know what was happening,
4: but I felt like I needed I needed my mom. Um, mm-hmm. Take your time. It's okay. I don't think you ever stop needing your mom. Mm-hmm. So, so I go to my mom and I say I'm, I'm having some problems with you know my boyfriend, and I don't know what to do. And she says to me, honey, you need to be really careful what you say to me because
2: I've experienced this with your father. Um, You can forgive what he does, but other people won't once they know. Mm -hmm. So you have to be careful because you might be able to forgive him, but I'll always remember. And I just thought, I'm fucked. And for her to suggest that this, whatever was going on with us was forgivable, Mm -hmm. was another layer that I had to process of like, oh, I guess I need to be forgiving. I guess, I guess I'm asking too much. I'm, you know, I had no way of knowing what was happening in my relationship. I didn't tell anybody, of course, who am I going to run to and say, hey, I had to go to the bishop because, you know, we did some Levi Lovin that I don't really Mm -hmm. know was a choice. Like, you know, who am I going to run to and, and tell that shame to? And plus I was in a relationship and if you really felt bad about it, why are you still with him? And why did you let it happen again? And why were you in his bed? And on and on and on. You know, like the church has always taught you never to lay down in the company of someone you're attracted to, even though I mean if I dozed off in the in the passenger seat of the car, would that be permission? You know, Mm -hmm. like where can I doze off comfortably with my boyfriend safely? But apparently if you're in a certain position, then I mean Mm -hmm. you're done. So to, to have been, you know, to go to my mother, who I know is in an abusive marriage to, to get that advice of, sorry, kid, good luck with that.
4: Um, it was, it was pretty stark and it's, it's,
2: even though I knew, I mean, the one thing that I tell people who are with narcissists is that you, no one has a right to treat, make you feel like shit all the time. And so when I kind of finally looked at this guy, I'm like, you make me feel like shit mm-hmm. all of the time. I don't want I don't want love to be like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a novelist. I write about the most wonderful kinds of love and the most wonderful kinds of healing and like here you are just a fucking turd, like a whiny bitch of a man constantly acting owed and I just couldn't I couldn't do it anymore. So luckily I woke up to it. Luckily I was able to to say like enough is enough. But so many people, you know, and they talk about this in The Body Keeps the Score and I think a couple other books where you miss the war, you know, you kind of reenlist, you know, subconsciously sometimes, unconsciously sometimes, because you just miss the stimuli, you get bored, you get bored with, you know, a nice person, you get bored with a nice marriage, you get bored with nice friends, you're kind of like, not that you want to start drama or hurt anybody, but you're just kind of like, but now, we just watch TV sometimes and then hmm. eat good meals and then joke around and that's it. Because your sense of worth and your sense of purpose came from fighting that monster. So it's been a conscious choice of mine. I definitely, my experience after that wasn't, more, wasn't really that I was attracting narcissists, but I never asked them to leave. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of really narcissistic girlfriends, actually, Mm -hmm. like extremely destructive, extremely like manipulative, just dirty women who just play dirty all the time. Um, But I didn't want to be the bitch who asked them to leave because I've been called a bitch my whole life for Mm -hmm. having standards and defending myself. So it was more that reaction than it was me actually seeking it out. It was like, no, I really don't like you. You're kind of grody, but I should be forgiving. Mm -hmm. I should be nice. Everyone has issues. Let's, you know, you're not perfect, Kate, that whole thing that we do. So now being conscious and saying I, I'm allowed to have standards and I'm allowed to not feel like shit is a big thing yeah. for people who yeah. are covering. Yeah. But before we move on,
1: I just want to bring out a point, too, that um, we've talked about this in previous episodes. But I, I it was a long time ago, and I want to say it now, about a lot of times we might look at a situation like what happened to you where you're asleep and you wake up and it's this dry humping thing and you can say, well, it didn't really happen because a penis didn't enter right. a, a vagina. And so since the penis didn't go in the vagina, it doesn't really count. But it does count, right? Like, there, the thing I always think about is is how degrading it can be where you are just a receptacle for ejaculate, you know? And how your worth, your... Everything you are is just boiled down to... being this receptacle of, of ejaculate. And how damaging that is to to your psyche, to your soul, to, to, so you'd have something that happened and you're told to, um, you know, not really talk about it because you, you know, you don't want to be seen that way. And your mom tells you that you should probably just be forgiving and not talk about it. And then the, the church has told you, you should have been fighting and your own self, feels like well maybe this wasn't real because there wasn't a penis in my vagina but damn it sure feels like I was actually uh, you know assaulted Mm -hmm. and so I just wanted to bring out that about how a lot of times even when we're telling our own stories we can downgrade what happened to us because we have the uh, assumption that everybody else is going to downgrade it or rank it in a level of of whose uh abuse was worse but it it doesn't matter what it is it matters what it did to to you Mm -hmm. you know and so i i just wanted to bring that out because i know that there are there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast because they are legitimately trying to understand and there might be people who are like oh well whoo at least you didn't get raped. But,
2: right. you know, but were you? Yeah. Right? Well, I, what I, I was. It's interesting. My, when I brought this up to my therapist, he was like, he raped you.
3: Mm-hmm. And I said, well,
2: yep. it wasn't rape-rape. You know, we we love to, like, do the double word to make it real. And he was like, he put his genitals on yours without your fucking permission. Mm-hmm. And you were unconscious. He drugged you to do this to you. And... You know, it, it's funny, well, before I even talked to my therapist about it, my, my husband has extensive experience with, you know, the law and law enforcement, and I finally told him in 2018 what had happened, because there was the whole, why didn't I report thing with the Kavanaugh thing going on, oh, yeah. and I told him what happened, and he was like, that's felony sexual assault, mm-hmm. and I thought, no, no, and he's like, that, that's literally a felony, and I couldn't, I, ha- I couldn't move for a week, I just mm-hmm. remember laying face down on the carpet, because all that time, I had convinced myself that I had tempted him. I had participated. I hadn't even said no. You know, like I was so out of it that I'm like, well, but it wouldn't—it wouldn't fly in the court of law. Like, they, there's no way they wouldn't have been able to run the test, or it was probably just Tylenol PM for Christ's sake. I have no idea what he gave me. He's like, doesn't matter. Like, it's assault. If you're just—even if you're not drugged—it's assault. Mm-hmm. So yeah, to really realize like what he did was criminal. And what makes me shut, and I try not to think about it too much, is what did he do before? Yeah. Where the fuck were my pants? Yeah. Like, yeah. who knows what digits were where? I have no mm-hmm. fucking clue what was going on, and that's, that seriously grosses me out. But but you're right. Like, I, I very much minimized and said, mm-hmm. okay, so we you know we did some D.F.ing, big deal. Like, we were together. We were a couple. Yeah, I did all of it. But <clears> when <throat> it comes down to it, like, he... Did a lot of disgusting shit without my fucking
0: permission. Yeah. We have an issue with consent in our society, but we really have an issue with consent in the church. Um, uh, an example of that is baptism. Our kids, oh. we, we tell them when they're eight years old and, and, and train them and coerce them and program them um, with propaganda all through primary. And then they have the illusion of consent when they are asked if they want to be baptized. What happens if they say no? You need to get baptized at eight. You have, this is the age of accountability. If you don't do it, then you are going to be ostracized and shunned and lose the approval of your parents. We were talking about your mom. You, you never lose the need to be, have approval from your parents. Somewhere deep inside of us, there's that. If we are told that if we don't get baptized, that we're a great disappointment, that we that we have not done what we're supposed to do, and we're an obedient child, usually. But now that you're not doing this, you are disobedient. So you have a you don't really have a choice. It's an illusion of choice. There's a meme that I saw at one point where it's the picture of baptism, uh, dad and his daughter, and um, it says. <laughs> It says, we're so proud of Billy. He um, chose to get baptized. You know, if he didn't, something else would happen. And if he did, then we would throw him a huge party. (laughs) And he gets all the presents and everything. So what kid, what eight-year-old kid is not going to, you know, choose to be baptized? Um, The next example is the temple. We do temple preparation classes that say absolutely nothing about what covenants and promises that we are agreeing to when we walk in the temple. And then in the temple, in the endowment room, in the initiatory, we are a captive audience. We are a captive and vulnerable audience. If you choose to stand up and walk out of the of the endowment session, immediately you are a sinner. You have um, you, you're influenced by the devil. Um, you, your family is disappointed in you and will start their efforts to try to bring you back to church or make you go back to the temple. Um, and in that room, you've got people around you that it's supposed to be a great, um, a great experience. You're going to the temple and this is a big milestone, but yet you're sitting there and you're committing everything to everything with which you have been blessed to the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm, I'm, um, submitting to my husband as he submits to the father. I'm, you know, what, what the fuck?
2: That that was actually the biggest betrayal for me was, you know, growing up, I felt like God and I were a team Mm -hmm. and I felt like God understood me while no one else did. I felt that we were a partnership. I felt like he was the father that I deserved. And when I went to the temple for the first time, especially after dealing with my father, with some other relatives, and with this asshole boyfriend, it was, you obey your husband as he obeys me. And and suddenly there was a barrier there, Mm -hmm. and it was a man. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, the fuck is this? Like, it was you and me, dude. I thought it was you and me, but the the highest Mormonism for me, the highest living of the law, is me obeying a dude who that doesn't mean anything. That dude that fucking right fucking had garments on. Mm-hmm. He was a worthy male. The mm-hmm. bishopric were up my ass about dating him. Mm-hmm. Like I trusted the whole fucking system of discernment and priesthood and all their fucking powers with this person.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And now you want to tell me that I have to pick the right dude to come between you and, and between me and God. Mm-hmm. I'm not disgusting. Completely yeah. disgusting. It is disgusting. It was a huge, but I couldn't back out. You're right. You're going, oh, is that Oh, that's how that's how God really is. This is the mm-hmm. highest form of spirituality,
4: and I just got betrayed. Yeah, exactly.
1: It was awful. So what did what did you do? What? How did that situation work itself out in your life? Which one? Sorry. The the boyfriend that
2: uh, raped you. Oh, kind of funny. We um we made out one night. See, and this is where my whole guilt comes in. I'm like, what did you say? But he had me, like, so starving for kindness and, and affection at some point that, you know, once he just started kissing me. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess we're kissing now. And he just in his pants. And he flew into – I didn't touch him. We just kissed. We were just kissing. And he messed – and he was always really self-conscious about his hang time. And he was, like, had brought that up before. Like, oh, when we get married. I'm so worried. I won't be able to, like, pleasure you. And <laughs> I just thought I wasn't – my mind didn't think that. Bad. I was very naive. I was just like, I'm not. It'll be fine. But apparently he doesn't have any, any mm. time at all. Mm-hmm. So logical. I don't know. I guess that's a reasonable concern for him to have. But um, he started yelling at me that I had done that. And I was like, I didn't fucking touch you. I didn't touch you. And he was like, you're just like this. And you need to work on yourself. And I'm sick of you making me do this. And, and so we had this big fight and I left. And after a few days of the silent treatment, I came back over to his house, and I was like, I don't think we're good. I just don't think we're good. And he was like, you know what? I see nothing but red flags with you. First of all, your family is one big red flag. And I was like, what are you talking about? Because I didn't know at the time. But then his next was like, I don't like what you write. And I was like, my my novel? Because I had given him a manuscript. And he was like, yeah, I want to know the kind of person who writes that kind of stuff. And it was like YA fiction. It wasn't even like wasn't even, but it was dark, you know, it was like dystopian a little bit. And so he said, yeah, I don't want to know the kind of person who writes stuff like that. So I was like, well, where's the manuscript? And he like pulls it out from under his bed. So I grabbed it and I was like, okay, thanks. That's all I need from here. And I just walked out. So like, fuck with me all you want, but if you fuck with my writing, I'm going to kill you. Like, I'm just, we're done. <laughs> we're done. And of course, in typical Mac fashion, his mother wrote me letters about forgiveness, 70 times 7. She called me several times and I finally said, look, you know, like he... He's not what he's like she, he just keeps saying that you left him. You left him. You left him. And I'm like I understand that I left him. I did. Because he said he was he loved me, but wasn't in love with me and the spark is gone and maybe I need to work harder to get the spark back. But then anytime I touched him, I was sinning. So I'm like I don't She's like yeah, I've always I've always said it. I've always told him he needed therapy. And I'm like thanks lady. Thanks for letting me Right? Like, you blew him up in my mind to be this great guy, this great kid of yours. Meanwhile, you're like, yeah, oh, sorry, I knew he was fucked up this whole time. Sorry about that. So yeah. yeah, he sent some flying monkeys. Um, he returned all the gifts. But yeah, there were times when uh, one time I forgot my phone in my car and this was back in Nokia days and there were 17 missed calls from his number.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And this was the kind of behavior that started to become kind of normal. Like he would call and hang up and call and hang up over and over and over and over again. Um, and I never answered because I just thought, I have nothing, I don't want to get back together with you. I don't want to hear your shit. I don't. And, but it was just, they were every, every so often, he would get really, really obsessive and try to get a hold of me. And that's, that's kind of the thing with nox, is that when they're not getting a reaction out of you and they're you no longer respond to their flying monkeys, they, they start to get pretty obsessive. But luckily he didn't. Um, he didn't really act on it. Mainly because I think my brother and my dad were scarier than he was. Yeah. So did did this have any um,
1: effect on your church standing or your church uh, your church life? Did you continue? Did you confess to your bishop? Did you work through like a forgiveness worthiness process? Or
2: no. And that's really interesting that you asked that because I never felt like I needed to clear this up. And maybe I just knew I was with a dirt bag, The really yeah. abusive dirt bag. I, I just never felt, I felt guilty and kind of like dirty because I wasn't the perfect clean anymore because mm-hmm. someone had touched me places. But, um, but no, I didn't feel like, I, again, I, I think this was pre-temple for me where I felt like God, God was on my side and God had forgiven me and God knew what was up so i didn't no i didn't i i kept going about a year later i was asked by the bishop to get my endowment before i was married i wasn't even dating anybody and i did and that was where the kind of things started feeling off for me because it was so different the temple was so different and it felt it felt very much like ownership and that bothered me a lot but i wasn't allowed to question you know mm-hmm. I, I was just supposed to trust and it was it was a huge betrayal for me and then i you know i did get married um You know, it's funny because he and I are just like the same person. Like, we're super funny, super chill, super relaxed. Both have very similar backgrounds with the church and and how we were parented. Um, So, yeah, we we know, luckily, I found someone who isn't a jackass. He's actually a really great guy. So I'm really blessed that I didn't continue that cycle and that I, I, I made a conscious effort to notice, you know, does he yell at you? Does he... Does he talk down to you? I interviewed his friends. I actually interviewed his friends. Like, so, what's he really like? And they're like, no, he's great. He's great. He's an Eagle Scout, and he helps out, and he's super fun, and he's super chill. And I would like, go, and I, I talk to an ex-girlfriend. like, so what's he really like? They're like, I'm still in love with him. He's so great. So I really <laughs> did my homework as best I could to interview multiple people who, who'd known him for years and years, and just did my homework that way, protect myself. So
1: That's awesome. And yeah. you were... You married him in the temple. You guys were both active members.
2: Yeah. Um, we were very, very active, very into it. Um, in 2012, I, I kind of had this spiritual experience where I felt like the church wasn't true. Because was I've never had a confirmation of the church. I've had confirmation of principles. I felt the spirit. I felt like a lot of things of the church were true. But whenever I ever prayed about the actual overall church being true, it was silent never got that confirmation. So um, I decided to, to seek out that confirmation, you know, to really get, to have my questions resolved and, and to make sure that um, I was kind of a gospel scholar on the whole thing. And I included my narcissistic family in the process, which allowed for a lot of harassment, a lot of lectures, mm. a lot of judgment, a lot of cruelty. Um, I was told, you know, if you read Rough Stone Rolling, you'll love Joseph Smith even more. And some, two siblings said that to me, and I thought, what's wrong with me? I think he's a he's a perv. Like I, I feel I, half a chapter in, I, I realized the church had been lying to me. I think he like cut the throat of an of a, of a goat or something, or was treasure hunting, and I just thought, oh my god, I've been lied to So, um, so luckily, you know, not luckily, I kind of shared this stuff with my husband and when I got to the chapter on Helen Mark Kimball and I said, Did you know that Joseph Smith married a fourteen year old? And he said, What? And I read that paragraph to him and he said, Fuck this church And he like rolled over and went to bed and I thought, Oh my God, I'm going to hell because what if I'm wrong? And I just (laughs) led my husband astray, the priesthood holder, the cis white male, the golden, you know, ruby of everything. Like I just screwed over my salvation and yeah, I'm gonna go to hell, but
0: um, I'll go there with you. Right
2: though? Yeah, it's probably funner. Um, it's so we worked on out together. We worked on a lot of a lot of worthiness issues, and we went to therapy, and we excavated all of the abuse and all of the bullshit and all of the the mind games that we felt we had. You know, his, for him, he's like, I went to, I went on a mission. How did I not, not know this stuff? And I was like, I went to BYU and I don't know this stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like we're supposed to be these people who are like, oh no, I know everything. He's like, I he's like, I. One of his things is like I converted people and told people. I was a neat 18-year-old kid, 19-year-old kid, telling grown-ass adults who lived together and cohabitated with children to move out from each other's house for a year in order to get... He's like, I was advising adults and talking down to and judging adults and then asking disenfranchised people in Georgia to pay more tithing. He's mm-hmm. like, I feel like shit. Yeah. And, and so we had a lot to forgive ourselves for. Mm-hmm. And to, you know, look at the reality of the situation. And nobody wants to think they're brainwashed. Nobody wants to feel like they got controlled and duped. Mm-hmm. And, and so I feel really bad, especially for, for my family, my own personal family, where they've invested so much in the idea
3: mm-hmm.
2: and maybe taken so much direction from my dad that they can't have him be that. Yeah. Because then what was that all for?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. You have to believe in that purpose yeah. of it. It's, it's really difficult. I get it. So as, as you went through
1: your faith transition with your, with, with your husband, you, I think you talked to us about this before we were recording. So can you just explain, you just said that you included your family on that journey. What, what did that look like?
2: Um, you know, I had, I had very, I had every intention of proving the church true. I had every intention of finding every answer that I wanted. And so um, so I included them. I thought, you know, my family's intellectual. My family loves to have these challenging intellectual conversations. It's actually something I kind of miss um, because they were, you know, they were interesting conversations. And so I thought they, had, they, they would have to know. So it unfortunately kind of devolved into a lot of lectures and a lot of judgment of, like, well, I guess you just don't get it. I guess you just don't understand. I guess you just think you know better than everybody else, don't you? And, and again, you're in that narcissistic cycle of proving the negative or, like, trying to disprove a negative. You're like, no, I'm not a bad person. Okay, prove it. And You're going, I, I didn't do anything wrong, but you're wrong at your core because you don't want to go along with this program, so something's wrong with you like we always thought it was. So I'm walking this tightrope really trying to not be the difficult one not be the family asshole. Not be the one that's showing them. Oh, see how selfish Katie is. You know, I'm. I'm just. But at the same time, knowing like I can't live this.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I've lived it perfectly for 32 years, and it's not true. Mm-hmm. I can't. I can't lie to myself or lie to anybody else. I can't. Yeah. So, it was. It was really difficult because after a while, it was very clear to me um, that they were allowed to have their kind of testimony meetings with me and I was supposed to just take it because questioning them or going down any kind of rabbit hole would lead to these kinds of questions. Like, Oh, where'd you read that? In that tone, Oh, where'd you read that? Um, I read it in this book. Who wrote it? Who wrote it? Uh, this person. Well, don't you think they have an agenda? Don't you think that they would just love to ruin the church? I'm like, what would that gain? What would they gain from that? Oh, I don't know. Fame and attention. I'm like, well, it was a journal entry. From who? Oh, God. You know, you're just sitting there and like, just run in circles and, and talk down to you. And then when you say, you know, please don't talk to me like that. Oh, how am I talking to you? Oh, am I insulting you? And you're just exasperated. And, and I remember having an experience with of my siblings brought up, you know, the, the, some of the issues. And it was this lecture. And I thought, if I retaliate, her, you know, the 12-year-old and the, and the 10-year-old are sitting right there. hmm That's so unfair. It's so unfair that I can't defend myself. And that, again, the child is looking at the parent going, well, I guess Aunt Kate agrees with my mom, or I guess my mom is right because, no, she's not saying anything. But if I said something, I would basically rip their souls out of their bodies. So I'm going, okay. And just gray rocking, again, and being Mm -hmm. complicit. It was really, really painful. And I felt that distance growing more and more. And that idea that Mormons know better and that you're the weak one just drove so many wedges in the relationship that I, I kind of felt like when I finally came to them and said, Please stop asking me to have a relationship with, with dad, it's enough. That I knew this was going to be it. Like this mm-hmm. was going to be the, the knockdown, drag out kind of explosive ending that, that the tension was going to finally blow. And it did.
0: Yeah. So. so something you were just saying about um, your husband feeling bad about converting people when he was on his mission um, it made me think about how the church actually uses victims um, or survivors of abuse to further their cause so we're all, we're all in this religion where we didn't really know that we were being brainwashed um, it's hard to accept that like you were saying but we all become victims of the narcissistic system of the corporate church um, so they use the the idea that we are we are victims and victims actually are going to question themselves we're going to feel guilty for the the abuse of the abuser so your husband was feeling bad that he used this system that was abusive to convert people but but the tool is actually the abuse the the church is actually the abuse and the abuser as victims, we, we continue to try to you know, question ourselves, and is this really the right time to speak up? Is this really the right thing to say? And did I say it wrong? And if I said it this way, is that really going to actually harm the person that's the abuser? We don't think about ourselves. We think about how we, we, we question ourselves, and then we feel guilty for the, for the crimes of the other person, for the, sure. for the abuse.
2: Yeah, we self blame. And we, yeah. yeah, we, we, when they plant that worthiness, unworthiness, you know, seed in your brain, um, mm-hmm. you can't win that. Right. You can't win. Mm-hmm. And so you, and, and then honestly, like for years before I even knew what narcissism was, I honestly believed that I was the difficult one.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I honestly believed that I was the family fuck up. And it was mm-hmm. only when I said, <laughs> I honestly believed that I was a dumb one too because of the tone that they would talk to me. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, okay, well, wait. Did you have something you wanted to say? Okay. Mm. Are you done? Like I just Discussing. couldn't ever I just never felt smart. And when I actually sat down and and this is what's hard after abuse is that you have to look at your evidence mm-hmm. of who you are as a human being. And it has to be that precise and you have to be just incredibly meticulous mm-hmm. about showing that your behaviors are a manifestation of how good you are. Yeah. And that someone mistreating you does not get to decide what you're worth Mm -hmm. and it's it's almost impossible to think that way it really is because when it comes down to it when you're abused from a childhood you know very young age and and as thoroughly as this as emotional and narcissistic abuse is you really have no baseline
3: Mm -hmm.
2: and so you don't that argument is going to happen in your head for the rest of your life in every situation. It really is. And it's, it's a a challenge worth pursuing. Mm -hmm. And, and I do have to remind myself, like I've never done this to my children. I would never do this to a child that yes. That whole idea of, well, you you weren't perfect. My children don't have to be perfect for me to be loving for them to be safe, for me to protect them and teach them. Like, Mm -hmm. The the idea of blaming the victim and saying, you know, what's your part in it? We we all have mud on our hands is such mm-hmm. an abuse tactic. It is. It's huge. Yeah. so yeah. I understand that, that people who have been through Mormonism yeah. absolutely want to include themselves and say, well, I could have done better, but
0: yeah nope. And what was my part in this? Right. What was my part it's... in being raped? Was I wearing the wrong clothes? Was I, you know, was I being seductive? Did I lay on his bed? Did I fall asleep and look pretty? You know? do I have a vagina? I just have one, you know, right. but even if I'm not showing it off, it's still my fault. Uh-huh.
4: yeah, yeah it's pretty dark
0: it is it is yeah. welcome to my brain, you know, and your yeah. brain and your <laughs> right It's exhausting being resilient, it's exhausting being someone who has to constantly think about. You know, we're feeling guilty for things that aren't really our fault. It's exhausting to constantly question ourselves and not really be able to trust ourselves. I'm tired of being resilient. I don't want to have to be resilient anymore.
1: So in real time, I, I just uh, muted myself and went to the bathroom <laughs> like I do, like like this is a little inside inside information into the podcast is that Dana has to pee every 15 minutes. But um, so also while I'm doing these, I, I get really anxious. So I got my little rocks that I'm playing with, right? So I go into the bathroom to pee and I hear a big clunk in the toilet oh no. when I stand up. And I've got these earplugs, you know, my headphones are in my ears. And I looked down in the toilet and I dropped my rose quartz palm stone into the toilet that I peed in. So as y'all are talking about this, I'm digging my rose quartz crystal out of my toilet that I peed in.
2: And and that's my life. I would only that's- have gotten that out of my home toilet. If it was a public toilet, I'd be like, go with the gods.
4: Right. <laughs> You know,
1: you're on the toilet. Yeah. No shame. Yeah. So, yes, sorry. I just thought that was funny because it's such an example of like, you talk about the exhaustion and stuff. Like, my brain, mm-hmm. um, my, my brain is full a lot. And I say that to people, and people don't really understand what that means. But, yes, this hypervigilance, this. Uh, constant defending of ourselves, this feeling of isolation, uh, loneliness, um, all the time that I spent trying to figure out and make sure that I wasn't actually the narcissist. And um, always this idea of uh, I'm the common denominator here. Like, everybody hates me. So there's got to be some element of how how this is my fault and i'm annoying and i'm embarrassing and i'm abrasive and um you know if if all of these people believe that about me there really must be something wrong with me and you know frankly i'm still going through this it's still how i feel i'm still in the middle of my trauma um i feel like it's gotten worse since since my uncle died not better and um, yeah, but that's what, that's sort of why we're we're all wanting to tell our stories because when you're raised Mormon, you are you are always walking around trying to present this idea of perfection. And now I'm in this place where I recognize that I can't keep doing I can't keep doing that. I can't keep putting up a mask. I can't I I can't keep Furthering this idea of perfection, I want people to know how fucking imperfect I am. How difficult this is, and so when when they feel bad that they're struggling in their journey, they realize that I'm feeling the same way, and you're feeling the same way, and we're all t- trying to process it. And I'm trying. I know that you know one of our pursuits with the podcast is. Kendra and I started this in real time. We were processing everything that was happening in real time. We're going on this journey in real time. I just barely learned about narcissism, and I learned it from you, and how can we take the things that you um, have taught me and teach them to others, and how can we realize that even though we may be the common denominator in a lot of these things, it's not our fault. We're the common denominator because we experienced abuse, which has changed us forever. Mm -hmm. And I I think that we're sort of taught that, you know, forgiveness is not about making it right. Forgiveness is about freeing ourselves. Sure, that's, that's great. But... It gives a false idea that if you just believe in God and you just follow all the rules and you do the forgiveness thing, then you're going to be better. And I think that there's a lot of people wandering around thinking that they're broken, not just from their abuse, but they're broken because they did all the things that they were told they were supposed to, and they still feel broken. So they're broken, and then they're broken again, and they're broken again, and you... And I think that we don't know that about each other. We only let people see what what we want them to see. And so a lot of us are, are hiding or we're trying to mask it or we're, we're trying to play the part of, of being well when we're not well. And so... I'm just here to say I'm fucked up. I'm super depressed. I'm having a really hard time. But I want other people to know that it's okay for them to feel that way too. It, mm-hmm. It's a process. And let's stop pretending that we're perfect. Let's stop pretending if we do, you know, the, the, the path of forgiveness or get back on the covenant path or all of that bullshit. Let's just stop that and let's be real and let's let each other see our pain in our process so that they understand that they are not broken, they're not alone, they're not weird. They are actually very normal, and this is a normal process. And the fact that I'm a common denominator doesn't make me the bad one. It it makes me, um, when you're abused, you just have such a high likelihood of, of being abused over and over again. Mm-hmm. Well, I love everything that you just said because that's
2: 100% important that's crucial for people to understand that I want to add that missing your family, missing the church doesn't negate that you can't be there anymore or that they're not good for you I I don't think there will ever come a time when I don't miss my mom Mm
3: -hmm.
2: you know, like Like we've all discussed, she's not a monster. She's not a horrible person. She's my mother. And I miss my dad. He was funny. You know, like there were times when he was absolutely hilarious. And I miss my, I mean, more than anything. And I I don't even, if they ever hear this, I don't think that they'll, first of all, ever forgive me for speaking. And then secondly, for ever speaking about any issues I could possibly have with them. But I miss them the most. Well, except for one. I miss two of them very, very much. Um, and I, I do love and admire them, and I do understand why we've had to part ways, but that doesn't change the fact that if I
3: go back to that power dynamic, I'm gonna get eaten alive, mm-hmm.
2: you know? And so anybody who who says that they've left their abuser but doesn't look at the good times and doesn't see the good and doesn't miss and wish that things had been different, it's par for the course and mm-hmm. you can still say like you're just not good for me though. We're just not, I can't, I can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't, that doesn't mean that you made the wrong decision. It just doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, there, you know, as you were saying, um, talking about how you know, you're the common factor, I've done that too. Mm-hmm. Um, I have had extended family who won't speak to me anymore now. And that extended family also comes to people that we have in common and says shit like, well, there's two sides to every story. You know, like, well, you know, I just don't think you have all the facts. And you're going, Mm -hmm. well, you haven't heard my side. You don't come to me and ask me for the facts or my facts. You just, you're coming from the source and you're telling everybody else that you have all the viable information and that everything that I say isn't fact. So it's another, you know, tactic. It's another way of discrediting you and making sure that you are on your heels and you can never just settle because the flying monkeys don't stop, they don't get as tired as we do it's fun. I mean, gossiping's fun, right? Like it's energizing. It kind of like activates you a little bit. And so they're going to have more energy for that. And that doesn't mean that I have to go back to that or prove anything to them or mm-hmm. contact them and say, can you hear me out? Yeah. I can still build that trust in myself and know for myself that I never
4: deserve to feel like shit. Yeah.
1: I just think it's really important to, t- to, Talk about missing your siblings, because I think that's a really difficult thing for me. I, I'm the oldest, and it was my job, you know, to cook and clean and do people's hair and get us all on the bus and make sure that we all got home. You know, I, I stood up for them when they were being abused in the household. I went out on a limb a lot of the times. Um, my husband... You know, I, I have siblings who don't remember too much of life without my husband around. You know, I I started... He was my boyfriend starting from when I was 14, and then I married him at 15, and I, I was significantly older than my siblings. So my husband has sort of become one of the siblings too, and and my husband has just, like, he's always been very generous. He's the one who will you know, go to my sister and change her tires for her, make sure the cupboards are full of groceries, you know. And then to just have our whole family, including my children, be completely cut off from the family unit has been uh, absolutely devastating. I feel betrayed. I feel... Sad, I feel lonely. I, I miss my siblings. I've had a really tough year, and I it would have been so much easier for me to have had a, an outlet with, with family members to be able to talk and um, talk through things. And instead, I've had to deal with it myself, and then I'm not doing it fast enough, and I'm not doing it the way they want me to, so mm-hmm. then I'm in trouble for that. And I, I You know, I just feel really freaking betrayed and really, really, really sad. Mm -hmm. Really sad. They chose or they're actively choosing someone that they know is harmful over me. And um, I don't really care how that sounds. I mean, a lot of times I get hit with that, too, that I'm really arrogant. That's such an arrogant way for me to think. But... It's still true. They're choosing something else over over me. And I feel that. And my children feel that. And my husband feel that. And it's just damn painful.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Along those lines, um, I totally relate to you because my whole life, I was, in order to be in my parents' service, I was told, well, we're family, we're family, we're family. Or, mm-hmm. come on, it's Christmas, it's Christmas, it's Christmas. Well, three Christmases have passed. Mm-hmm. And I guess... Family doesn't mean what you guys thought it means because I've had no one even check in on me. You know, mm-hmm. I've no one even just hey are you okay? Just nothing. For three years. It took me two yeah. years to start posting about narcissism.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And even then I was like shaking and trying not to throw up because I was like, I'm gonna get in so much trouble. You know, like they're really gonna they're really gonna hate me now and I'm like, fuck that shit. They haven't talked to me for two years. Mm-hmm. You know how much shit's going on in my life and they haven't given a shit for two years? Yeah. No, no. It's awful. It's awful. You think like no, they'll come around, they'll realize they don't. Like they
1: well, don't get shit. Yeah. My my mom and my stepdad are both PAs. They're both physician assistants. And um it, at the same time that this stuff was going on with Tom, I I also had both of my hips fully replaced and I had my SI joint fused. And those are major, major surgeries. After my second hip replacement. I lost so much blood that I had to have a transfusion. It was the most painful, excruciating thing I've ever been through. And my mom did not so much as send me a text message. They never came by. They didn't call. They didn't even ask my siblings to ask me how I was doing or anything. Anything, and
2: she, probably and the future fake you too. She probably says something. Well, I would have if you had only X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. She absolutely did. She yeah. said, "I didn't feel
1: like you would want to hear from me." And then, um my—I don't even know how to say this. My mom is a shaman now, so she left. She left working as a PA. She retired and went into shamanism. And her claim is that she did it for me to help heal me, which is ridiculous because she never talked to me about it one single time. But so, yeah, if I brought up, I, I did end up texting her and say, this was really shitty that I had all of this going on, including hip replacements, and you just didn't even check in on me and um yeah it was all about well i did this whole shaman thing so that i could heal you but i guess you went and had hip replacements instead <laughs> so i guess you don't need me you know <laughs> oh gosh oh man <laughs> it's in en- it's embarrassing mm-hmm. she could heal your hip replacement your hips Is that
3: what
1: she- you wouldn't have needed a hip replacement I mean, she would heal, she wanted to heal everything, apparently, except for she never contacted me about it. (laughs) That
2: sounds about right, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I heard stories of my parents crying to other people about how much they love me and miss me, but I never, Mm. they never told me that. Mm -hmm. I had a sibling that was like, I think mom misses you. Pretty sure she should. Yeah, she probably does. And I'm like, this isn't helping. This isn't. But they would make a big show of like, oh, my daughter, my daughter, and I, you know, I'm sure that they're up in testimony meeting, talking shit about me, but because I'm here talking shit about them, that's worse, yeah. I don't know, but you know, there's, they, they have a badge of an astray daughter who hardened her heart and gave him the finger, yep. and they're all victims of me now, so they're yes. still going to get fed, yes. Yes. they're still going to get that attention,
3: Yeah.
2: yeah. Just like the yeah. will always you know, feed off of its victimhood and mm-hmm. play lame and be like, oh my gosh, nurse me back to health, members, pay me more tithing, members. I need, we need your help, members, because mm-hmm. we're so victimized in this world that doesn't want to be Mormon. <laughs> the
0: goal and, and shame you know? on the members for not so, paying more more fast offering. You know they need to be paying more fast offering. Then they start getting on people to pay more fast offering and be honest with your fast offering and be honest with your tithing. Are you sure you're actually paying 10%? Really? they grilled you guys
2: like that?
0: (laughs) Not not like personally, but that's what the church does to the the members. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So can you give, can you like offer the audience good suggestions on how to to deal with like, if they've been listening to this and they're like, holy shit, this is what the problem is with, with my mom or my dad, you know, can you offer some, like, practical tips and tricks, the tips and tricks of dealing with a, a narcissistic abuse?
4: Um,
2: yeah, I think, you know, if you're, if you're not stuck with the person, then I would minimize contact as much as possible. Like, if you live across the country, maybe call only once a month or call and put the receiver down somewhere and go go, go live your life while they're talking. Um, but with, with me, the problem, and I, I think most people are kind of going through this because they might have a spouse or they might have a child or they might have, uh, you know, a close-knit parent. And that since I was living in the same community, the same ward, you know, it was it was growing more and more to the point where I'm like, I have to pull my endorsement for this candidate because this is happening in my community. And he's becoming more and more belligerent, and there, I'm hearing more and more stories of how he's either gotten violent with someone or how he's, you know, humiliated someone in Sunday school or all these different things. And then the the, the last thing was he is sitting at my table, saying all these disgusting things about disenfranchised people in America, women, etc., and my children are hearing it mm-hmm. and thinking that mommy agrees. So my best advice is if if it's a family member. Um, try to isolate them, you know? Say, yeah, we can have coffee away from my home or we can go to lunch and then you can gray rock them there and they can be as toxic and foul as they want to be, but it won't be around your children. Mm -hmm. Um, When it comes to the holidays, I I would absolutely recruit your children if they have to be subjected to it. Um, I think...
4: Honestly, I think the one thing that, that my mother could have done better
2: is first of all, she should never have allowed it to go that. Like she should have intervened a lot sooner when he attacked me. But if she, behind closed doors, she could have discredited him more and said, "What he said to you was wrong. You're wonderful. He's projecting. This is what he does. He's done this to me. He's wrong. You're wonderful. You know." But. I never got that feedback from her. So I honestly just accepted that I deserved this and that nobody in this family liked me. So I think if you're dealing with a spouse and you can't leave, which I think you can. I think anybody who really wants to, I've seen women in some incredibly dire situations giving the support they need to leave. And if you want to, then you can. If you honestly feel like you can't and you have children, I would do my best to, or, you know, ask you to do your best to protect them from the outburst and the rage and then to also explain to them what it is you know and kind of because yeah, it's hard because narcissists breed more more narcissists and that kind of hot cold and that kind of given like well no give and all take um can really can really mess a kid up and so i would enlist the help of a the therapist i would get all of the tools and all the support that you need if your children are being subjected to it. But, um, but ultimately I think I would put myself between the narc and the kids as much as I possibly could. That's it. Yeah. And get a therapist. one who knows about narcissism.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is anything that, uh, you wanted to plug, um, any of your books or any, um, Anything on your Facebook page or Instagram page or anything?
2: Anyone's free to follow me. I kind of, I I absolutely encourage people to follow and have these discussions. So I I think the one thing that helps people the most is realizing what narcissism is and that they're not alone. Mm -hmm. And you can almost plug any narcissist into any given situation and you'll get the script. It's really eerie. To have someone say, no, that's the exact wording that my narcissist uses and to feel that you have that support and that you're not crazy Mm -hmm. can really go a long way in dealing with them as you go. And also detaching from all the meaning of it and looking at it more observationally Mm -hmm. has helped me, um, stay calm, stay detached and look at it for what it is. So, um, so yeah, you're free. Absolutely. You know, free, you know, follow me, um, I'm a little bit more discerning when it comes to men who want to be added, so maybe let me know why you want to be added if you're a male. But, um, but yeah, we can have this. I, I am working on a lot of fiction, so it's not necessarily anything pertaining specifically to narcissism, though people have asked me to work on something like that. So maybe in the future, I will
1: yeah.
2: absolutely write something on, on all of this. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I definitely want to endorse you and uh, encourage people to follow you because you. You always are very concise and you always have really good advice and you know, maybe not advice, but like you point out a lot of things and your videos are really good. People should definitely follow you on Facebook and you are
2: Catherine Jeffries on Facebook. Yeah, we sure. understand there are a lot of people that cannot comment, that cannot like and support mm-hmm. because they're in the situation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's just helpful for them to feel like I'm not crazy. You know, yes. so I, I, if you're in this situation um, and you just want to be an observer, then I totally don't expect you to put yourself out there and then endanger yourself in any way to support me or anybody who's talking about narcissism. Just You just know that you're not alone and that you are, honestly, you will 100% be, be believed. Like I have heard the stories and I can t- tell those women even the men, too, like, obviously. Um, there are a few less men than women. Usually they have narcissistic mothers, but these are women who are in a scary marriage or a scary relationship, and just telling them, you know, hunker down, you're safe, you know, keep your head down, know that you're loved, and know that I'm here to listen, and I'm, whenever you're ready, we can find a way.
1: Yes. Don't you think... Um, one thing that we're trying to do with the podcast is change the way that people talk about their stories where rather than always being on the defensive or feeling like you've got to prove something or trying to make somebody believe you, to be able to tell your story with the assumption of being believed right Mm -hmm. out of the gate has been such an empowering thing on on this podcast where Mm -hmm. you can speak your story with confidence and with power and without that underlying feeling of guilt and maybe I'm saying too much and I should probably hold back here and people are just going to think I'm dumb anyway one of the things we're trying to do is just change that so that when when I'm speaking about it I can be angry Mm -hmm. I can be pissed off I can say all of the things but I can do it with confidence rather than
2: apology and I think a lot with it, with abuse, especially if you're the victim of abuse, you you want to factor in all the perspectives. Mm-hmm. And fuck that, your your story is real. What you went through was real. You can be trusted with your experience and with your feelings. And you don't have to make sure everyone's included and make sure everyone's got a nice cushy seat. It's your story. It's your life. And everything you're saying, everything you went through, has meaning and has power. And and it sucks because I'm I'm sitting here like working through my God issues, going. People think, people say those things like it happens for a reason. Mm. Oh my God, everything happens for a reason. And I'm like, okay, why? What's the reason? because like, yeah. then you can help other people who've been abused. And I'm like, why the fuck were they abused? Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about that. But then, since there's no way to really unravel that and get to the <laughs> get God on the table, mm-hmm. um, it is just important to allow people to own their experience and don't factor in. Don't make the, the people who made you feel like shit feel better. Mm-hmm. Don't. that's not your job anymore they felt better all over your brain all over your heart all over your soul they did whatever they they used you up run you out threw you out like they don't give a shit about your feelings so it's time for you to live your life giving a shit about your feelings Mm -hmm. and owning everything that happened to you absolutely i totally agree with you
1: do you feel like you communicated what you wanted to communicate today i
2: think so I think so. A little nervous but that comes with the territory. I think you're always going to feel like, kind of like feeling sad when it's, you know when you've lost your family but you're also nervous about stepping into the reality of it. It's, yeah it's a good, it's important.
1: Yeah, it really is. Every story is different and that's great because everyone listening has a different story that, that your story relates to. So we know that it's Scary, and you're really putting yourself out there. And but I just want to say thank you for doing it with us. Um, but also thank you in advance for everybody who's going to be listening and really encouraged and learn a lot about their own situation through your willingness to share
5: with us. And so we we really do appreciate it.
2: Well, thank you. I don't think I've ever had the opportunity to talk about it chronologically and kind of go through it. And and you know, it's kind of like when you say it all at once very quickly, you realize, holy shit, that was so fucked up.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: it's my normal. Yeah. And I and I didn't want him to ever look bad. And mm-hmm. no bishop was asking me if I was being hurt at home. And I just kind of thought that was normal. And mm-hmm. I, I guess it's okay. And it's only when you kind of step back or when you, you know, when I became a mom and I looked at my seven-year-old and I was like, I couldn't imagine grabbing him by the neck and hitting him for making a face. And then you so start realizing, yeah. holy shit. Or maybe, you know, people, I've had people who go, who go to church and start hearing the messages their kids are getting and going, oh, I can't do this shit to them.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I can't. It's, it's a lot, it, you know, it's a big step for, for anybody to, to speak what happened to them and to hear it all kind of concisely put and then to see the reactions of others and go, oh, really, was that bad? Okay, yeah, I need to take yeah. myself very seriously and give myself all the hugs and, and trust myself a lot more. I should also... You know, say that I'm not here where I am without, and I, w- I don't think I would be if it hadn't been for EMDR. That talk therapy just didn't dig it all out. It mm-hmm. just didn't. And as uncomfortable and time-consuming as EMDR was, um, you know, I was with a cer- i am with a certified, you know, trained therapist, and he actually helps certify other people. So I'm with, you know, kind of the cream of the crop with it, and he has helped me absolutely get more separation from all the internalization that that i had to do in order to survive and and i want to tell other survivors you know there were times when i acted very narcissistic there were times when i acted very aggressive there were times when i i was a fucked up person and i did exactly what i had to do to survive and i hope that we can all you know forgive ourselves for that and Put that blame exactly where it belongs on the person who, you know, drove us to that point and then take ownership moving forward and, and healing and, and vowing to do better. Because I think better is ahead for anybody who's managed to survive. Mm-hmm. I think it's possible. So,
0: yeah. Thanks for giving well, us good. so much time. Thanks for having me. Yeah. No, is... I.
2: I, I... That was really, really cool. Yeah. I really appreciate that. I'm glad yeah. you
0: guys asked. When you when you hear yourself tell your story back to yourself, there's it it can be kind of emotional. Um, it can also um be healing, but just just I don't know what it's gonna be for you. I know what it was for me. Um and uh so just be be patient with yourself when you do listen to your own voice telling it back to yourself. So
4: Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
2: That's right. Thank you. I appreciate
5: that. Yeah. Thanks for joining us on Latter-day Survivors. You can follow us at latterdaysurvivors.org, on Facebook at latter Survivors, on Instagram at latter Survivors. On TikTok, we each have our own TikTok. Kindra's is Latter-day Survivors, and mine is Latter-day Survivors Dana. That's D-A-Y-N-A. You can follow our Twitter at LDSurvivors. You can go to our website at LatterDaySurvivors.org and donate. It helps us keep bringing this podcast to you. And we also want to encourage you to follow Cody Francis. You can find him on Spotify and all music streaming services. Go out and support him, too. We thank you guys for joining us, and we hope that you'll come back next time, that you'll share our podcast, and that you'll tell your friends.
0: We are your hosts, Kendra Salani and Dana Brown. And as survivors of sexual assault, we wanted to provide a platform for survivors to share their stories. Many survivors of all types of abuse may be able to recognize and relate to the patterns of behavior in the victims, abusers, families, and friends Of the stories shared by other survivors on this podcast. Often as we escape oppressive family, religious, and social constructs to a safer place where we come to see our abuse and all related issues, we are better able to process and begin to heal. We believe that when we share our stories with others, we can also help them to heal. It can take decades for survivors to find the courage to speak about these things. If it is so hard for adults, Imagine how difficult it is for a child to speak up. We hope to normalize these discussions so that children can speak to adults earlier. As adults, we must listen and recognize the severity of the abuse, its potential consequences, and the need for action to stop the abuse as early as possible. Just knowing we are not alone, there are other people who have felt and do feel the same or have endured similar experiences in life, can remind us that we are not alone in this.
5: tell my story, I'm going to freaking
4: tell it.